Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. But they just about got that suit thing all figured out. They got that computerized. Every so many years, they will pay off Ralph Jones Black for being discriminated against. Give him his $40,000 and walk him. Now it'll be another eight years before they pick another one. They got this computerized. And the way they'll do it is just keep you running around in a circle with your little suits. You'll just be filing and filing and filing. Let's say, uh, what is it, the, the federal people in, if they, they found no, no basis of suit, you can't sue them uh, even in a private court. So ha they have the system locked down anyway. Oh, yeah, the whole, whole idea is to keep giving you the runaround. If you ever tried it, you got the runaround. The runner, you get an excellent runaround, all with smiles, too. Well, we're working on it. You check back with us any day now, you know. Eighteen years have gone by. Right. In his small living room in Chugiak, John Cedar is showing us shirts he made for a sled dog race in the late 80s when he raced poodles in the Iditarod. This is uh, when I ran in, in the, see, I think it was 1989 Iditarod. But this story is about what happened in Cedar's life after that moment, when he started working for the Anchorage International Airport in the late 80s. He said when he first got there, everything was fine. Then uh, after I started meeting uh, some of the black people there, the other minorities and the natives and the others, uh, I started seeing that, I, that they were there many years longer than I was, and I was bypassing them. And so it started raising a red flag, what's going on here? Finally, uh, things got, got worse. Suter, who is white, says that some of his managers would call black Americans working at the airport the N-word. In one incident, which we'll revisit, he says a manager shot at one of the black men he worked with with the noise-making pistol used to haze birds. He says some of his bosses were openly discriminatory against minorities. Suter was outraged. He went on multiple self-funded letter-writing campaigns. Well, I'd be buying boxes of 500 envelopes and rolls of hundreds and hundreds of stamps. He says he helped his co-workers write discrimination complaints to the Alaska State Commission for Human Rights, the state's anti-discrimination agency. 
Over the years, he'd sent media outlets and government officials more than 1,000 pages of emails, newspaper clippings, and case documents. He said he was reassigned to other departments and suspended because of his activism. Souter thought it was retaliation. He filed a discrimination case against the airport in 1997. Three years later, he was fired. According to his termination letter, he was fired after multiple disciplinary actions for making false and misleading statements. Souter says he has yet to learn what those false statements were. Documents from interviews with management say Souter routinely got distracted from his job duties. Five years after he filed his complaint, in 2002, the Human Rights Commission finished Souter's case. Case documents said his complaint was not supported by substantial evidence. But for Souter, that wasn't enough. We went to the ombudsman because uh, our complaint was that the Human Rights Commission is uh, not providing due process for any one who goes there and files a human rights complaint that works for the state. Notice how Souter says we. One of the people Souter worked with at the airport was a black American man named Theodore Burns. He goes by Teddy. He's the one Souter says he saw a manager shoot at with the small gun used to haze birds while he was sitting in a vehicle. The men think the incident happened because Burns is black. Burns also filed a case with the Human Rights Commission and was unhappy with the result. They appealed their cases with the ombudsman's office. The ombudsman is a state agency that investigates citizen complaints against government agencies and officials. At his home in Anchorage's Mountain View neighborhood, Burns keeps a stack of binders filled with hundreds of papers in his bedroom. And some of this stuff is what I ended up getting from the state. Doesn't make sense, right? Burns filed a racial discrimination complaint against the airport because he was scared. I was scared, and it bothered me for probably years. It was like a, you know, like, I guess it'd be like being in a war, shell shock or something. But Burns kept working at the airport. He still works there today as a senior equipment operator. Well, it was a good job for one thing, you know. State jobs are hard to come by, you know, good benefits and stuff. After seven years, in 2011, the ombudsman's office resolved Burns' case. We tried a lot of steps and stuff, and it's like spinning your wheels in, in the ice and snow in the mud. You think you're getting a little bit of traction, and all of a sudden you're slipping backwards. According to the final ombudsman's report summary, the Human Rights Commission did indeed take too long to investigate his complaint. But the shooting incident couldn't be investigated because it exceeded the commission's statute of limitations for complaints. The investigator sided with the Human Rights Commission's findings that there wasn't discrimination. But John Souter's case, which has been at the ombudsman's office since 2004, is still underway. Then, like now, Linda Lord Jenkins was the ombudsman. She's well aware of Souter. Typically, they do not take that long. Um, and yes... Our work often depends on other factors. The other factors include caseload, uh, incoming cases. They include staffing. Um, they include the complexity of individual investigations. Lord Jenkins wouldn't discuss Souter's case specifically, since it's still open. But she says in the mid-2000s, around the time when Souter and Burns filed their cases, the office had a small staff and an extreme increase in its caseload. She says the agency handles roughly 2,000 complaints a year. For very complex cases, 
the agency will open a full investigation into the complaint. Lord Jenkins says the investigations can take several years to complete. I guess the only thing I want people to know is that when they come to us, they they do get a thorough review of their complaints. And sometimes that takes a very long time. But 12 years? That's a good question. Um, I think if you if you do a quick investigation and you don't look at all the pertinent factors, it's not worth anything. I would err on the side of thoroughness and untimeliness. Here's Teddy Burns again. After I ended up getting my letter of no finding and stuff, I said, like, just gave up in a sense. And uh, John is good. John doesn't forget anything. (laughs) In the past two years alone, Cedar has emailed more than 50 legislators and staffers. Most of the lawmakers respond saying they won't help him because he's not a constituent. But Souter says he's come too far to quit. I don't know. I guess I'm perplexed as how come I uh, can't get somebody on board to say, you know, we ought to do something. We ought to go ahead and fix this. Souter says he wants accountability, an audit on the Human Rights Commission and Dunbudsman's office. Both agencies were audited in 2011. Linda Lord Jenkins from the Ombudsman's office wouldn't say when she'd finish his case. But she emailed Souter and 13 lawmakers saying the preliminary report had been forwarded to the Human Rights Commission. The commission just needed to respond. That was in July 2015. Souter's state lawmakers, Representative Dan Sadler and Senator Bill Stoltz, declined to comment. Senator Britta Gardner was one of the people copied in that email. She says she couldn't help Souter because he isn't one of her constituents. But her office emailed the ombudsman about his case. She was surprised and upset to hear Souter's appeal is still ongoing. What can happen this year that couldn't have happened last year or a decade ago? She says she doesn't remember the specifics of Souter's case, but she says the point is the amount of time that's gone by. Memories and data and all that stuff get harder and harder to access when it goes on this long. I, I think it's appalling and unjust. Whether he's right or wrong, it's unjust that this process should be, what is it now, 12 years? So Souter, at least for now, is still waiting for an answer. Reporting from Juno and Anchorage, I'm Lakita Chavis. After you walk past remnants of a slave ship, after you reflect on the immortal declaration that all men are created equal, you can see a block of stone. On top of this stone sits a historical marker, weathered by the ages. And that marker reads, General Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay spoke from this slave block during the year 1830. I want you to think about this. Consider what this artifact tells us about history, about how it's told, and about what can be cast aside. On a stone where day after day, for years, men and women were torn from their spouse or their child, shackled and bound 
and bought and sold and bid like cattle on a stone worn down by the tragedy of over a thousand bare feet. For a long time, the only thing we considered important, the singular thing we once chose to commemorate as history, with a plaque, were the unmemorable speeches of two powerful men. And that block, I think, explains why this museum is so necessary. Because that same object reframed, put in context, tells us so much more. The National Museum of African American History and Culture opened on the Mall in Washington, D.C. a month ago amid great anticipation and fanfare and to very positive reviews. The opening ended an effort that had begun a full century earlier. Our next guest is one of the driving forces behind that project. Judge Robert Wilkins is a member of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. His admitted obsession led to the congressional authorization of the museum and the selection of its location. That, in turn, led to his writing a book about the project titled Long Road to Hard Truth, the 100-year mission to create the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And Judge Robert Wilkins joins us in studio, as I say. Thank you, sir, so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Don. It's a real pleasure. Why did it take so long? Well, um, James Baldwin said back in March of 1968 to Congress, uh, my history contains the truth about America. It is going to be hard to teach it. And I think, um, as in many cases, uh, James Baldwin put his finger right on it. it it's a hard uh, subject to tackle uh, the, the full scope and history of, of the African-American experience in this country. It, it, it portrays some of the um, perceived uh, and, and actual hypocrisy of the founders um, when their talk of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness while they are enslaving other human beings. And um, and it's it's a hard subject to tackle, and I think it took a long time for the country to be mature enough and to be ready for this museum. What uh, what was the turning point? Do you think in, in making this happen? Was it was it uh, James Baldwin, or was it something earlier? Well, you know, the the inspiration a hundred years ago um, was you know fighting uh, the movie Birth of a Nation and and really responding at the, to the, at the turn of the 20th century. At the turn of the 20th yeah. century. And um, and there was always, you know, an effort to want to have um, African Americans be recognized and have, you know, a proper place um, in the historical context within the Smithsonian. The turning point came around um, um, 2000, 2001, when um, – it really became a, a sincere bipartisan effort to make this happen. Um, and, and President Bush, who was just elected, was very supportive. And, and Senator then-Senator Sam Brownback of Kansas and, of course, John Lewis of, of Georgia was the leader of the effort. But it really became a true bipartisan project. I call it the, the improbable, unstoppable coalition in my book. But, uh, but they, made it, they made it happen. I mean, there was actually a time of bipartisanship in Washington? 
You know, <laughs> I, I wanted to write about it because I think it, you know, we like to criticize when things aren't working, but, you know, let's give credit where credit is due. Here's a, a circumstance where, you know, uh, people put principle uh, above party politics and really came together uh, to do what they all believe was the right thing. And they weren't fighting over, you know, who got to speak first or whose name would be first on the bill, all of those types of things. They they really genuinely came together with this project. But there are other obstacles uh, along the way, needless to say. Yes. I mean, along the way, um, you had um, the Great Depression as an obstacle. You know, the, Congress actually approved um, the equivalent of this museum in March of 1929, um, but it was a bad time to try to embark sure. on a venture like this yeah. with the stock market crashing a few months later. Um, you know, we even um, were set back by sep- the September 11th attacks mm-hmm. because there was a lot of momentum to approve this museum in early 2001. But of course, those attacks um, diverted Congress's attention, rightly so, to other matters. So over the years, there been there were quite a few obstacles that the museum had to overcome. A- including the site, and I know you were actively involved in all of that, but as I understand it, the Smithsonian didn't really want to have very much to do with it at some point. Well, you know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, um, the Smithsonian really um, was not interested in creating uh, an African-American museum. They appointed a committee in the, uh, around 1990 to study the issue, and the committee said that the Smithsonian should get behind it, and then they, they, they did get behind it then, but Congress wouldn't pass it uh, in the 90s. And so when I got involved later on and around um, you know the late 90s and, and 2000, the Smithsonian was kind of indifferent to this. Mm-hmm. And as I talk about in the book, um, there were some of their officials that were kind of a behind-the-scenes um, opposing this. But once Congress approved it to their credit, all of the leadership and the staff got behind it, and they did a tremendous job. And and ultimately, you know, all's well that ends well. I should point out, because our time is, of course, limited, that uh, this history, your, your complete history, by the way, is something people can find in the book and should read it if they want to know about it. We can't discuss all of it, needless to say. But I'm curious about your obsession. What What triggered your own obsession? That's a word I think you use. Yes. Um, I use uh, the word obsessed to describe what developed, you know, it, be, it developed because I just heard a lot of stories um, of elders talking about growing up and fighting segregation and 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 the changes in their lives and the things that they had seen on the occasion of uh, sharing condolences after the death of a, of a church member. And and I said to my wife as we were driving home that night, why isn't there a museum? to capture all of this. And, and as I began to look into it, I became more and more obsessed with wanting to see it happen. Did it happen the way it, uh, it it was anticipated? In other words, in early projections as to what this museum would be, did it wind up being that? Or did it evolve uh, over a period of time? You know, I think that uh, people have had different um, ideas about this museum over the years. But I think you know, what we have ended up with is pretty close to the original vision from 100 years ago. Back then, they they conceived it as a national memorial building to Negro achievement and contributions to America. And I think that that's what this uh, museum is. In some sense, it's a memorial as much as it is a museum. 
Um, I think the the architecture is stunning and beautiful, and just um, you know, I think the 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 timing with with President Obama being in office as it opens, it really is to some degree a capstone of of you know African American achievement, and really um, brings a great sense of pride to the African American community, but I think to people of all backgrounds. The building is striking. The building is absolutely striking. Very, very different for that part of D.C., isn't it? Yes. It's not your typical kind of white marble uh, right. neoclassical building, um, but I think it fits uh, uh, nonetheless. It, it's, it's a beautiful uh, uh, bronze-colored uh, structure in the shape of, a, of an African corona crown. Well, let's talk about what people will find when they uh, when they visit the museum and, and go inside. I should point out, by the way, don't do it before March because it's sold out, as I understand it, until at least March. It, it's sold out, but you know, I have friends coming in this weekend, and you know, we're going to wait in line. They have some same day tickets okay. uh, that are available, but the the reaction has been amazing, um, and and it's worth it's worth the wait. Uh, they're just the history galleries um, are amazing. It, it begins, you know, at 1400 or so, uh, really to with an examination of what the global economy was like and how the slave trade evolved and, and, and began. And, and then, of course, focusing then on North America and the United States. And uh, you, you really learn a lot um, from that. And, of course, it examines... Um, the American history and the development uh, of the country and, and kind of the African-American role within that uh, as you move forward throughout um, towards the Civil War and Reconstruction and so forth. Is it set up in such a way so that the first thing that you're, you're confronted with that you see will be 1400 uh, or, I mean, is it a chronological uh, situation? So so the way it's set up is that you can um, go downstairs and they encourage you to go all the way down to the very bottom and then you begin at 1400 and as you wind your way through and you and up, you you go chronologically until you kind of end, end with the present. And then above, above ground, there are uh, galleries devoted to uh, sports, music, um, um, theater, um, television, the fine arts, communities, and the family research center and genealogy center. So there's a lot more uh, above ground as well. I've seen and heard interviews with people who've, who have been through it. And I gather it can be an extraordinarily emotional experience. And I think we can probably figure out where and why. But why don't you tell us uh, f- from your perspective? Well, I mean, there's just some of the things that you see are so poignant. I mean, you know, uh, shackles that are, you know, small enough for a toddler um, in thinking about, you know, someone actually wearing those and, and putting those on a small child. Um, you know, the, a whip that was used um, by an overseer and seeing the, you know, seeing that and thinking about um, the torture and the pain that it inflicted. Um, Seeing Emmett Till's casket Mm. um, and looking at, um, you know, the pictures uh, from the funeral and thinking about, you know, this this boy laying in who had been buried in there and what had happened to him. So, I mean, there's just so many things like that that really uh, draw out a lot of emotion. 
And in fact, um, the architects designing the museum um, created a special room as you exit the, ex- the the history galleries with a with a water feature and a pool of water and, and benches there called the contemplative court for people to sit and meditate and reflect. And and I've seen people just go into that room and and hug each other and just just you know sob after um, you know reflecting on what they've seen. What what is the composition, the racial composition of people visiting the museum? Is it overwhelmingly African American, or is it a, a good mix? It's a pretty good mix. Yeah. I mean, I you know can't speak in exact figures, sure. but but when I've been, um, it's been a very good mix, which I think is encouraging because. Um, you know the the Smithsonian's model motto is that this is a a people's journey, but a nation's story. Um, this isn't a museum that's really just for for blacks. It's a museum for everyone. It's a way to kind of really learn more about America from this the perspective of the African American experience. Uh, I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation. Uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Six students at Oregon City High School say the past few days have been tense. This after a photo surfaced on Twitter Monday. Current and former students holding a sign with a racist message. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. I'm Deborah Knapp. And I'm Lincoln Graves in for Steve Dunn. A second racist message was found yesterday on a student's doorstep. K2's Keaton Thomas is live in Oregon City. And Keaton, conversations about this are spilling over into the classrooms. Well, that's right. Much of the conversation was initially with social media, you know, someone's cell phone. But more recently, it's been conversations about racism and those photos in the classrooms with the teachers and staff. This was posted Monday to Twitter. Seems innocent, young men and women smiling for the camera. But the text, welcome back to the farm, then the N-word. Next to it, what looks like someone wearing a Ku Klux Klan gown. It makes me really sad and sick to my stomach seeing students do that. One person in the photo tweeted an apology. Part of it reads, I apologize to every single person this offends. I screwed up by being in this picture, and I know that, but I can't change it now as much as I wish I could. But the next day, a student wore a Black Lives Matter t-shirt to school, and when she got home, this note was left on her doorstep. Go back to picking cotton, N-word. Black lives doesn't matter. They are not representing our school well at all. Nathan Goodman, a junior, says these posts to social media have everyone talking seriously about race. The principal made an announcement to the school about it on Tuesday. The language on the sign in the drawing in no way represents the students of our school. Teachers talking about it in classrooms. Well, she was saying that she did not want her son to grow up in a world where people are just racist towards everybody. They asked if any students have any questions about it or how they feel, and we talk about it. We were going through that today in our advisory class. The superintendent, Larry Didway, sent a message to all Oregon City families calling the photos appalling and unacceptable. They're addressing the issue internally with the students and staff involved. Parents aware of what's going on just want it to stop. Hopefully it can just come to a stop because it's just not, it's just not cool.
Now, students are taking this response into their own hands as well. They've planned a vigil for, or a walkout for tomorrow morning and a vigil for tomorrow night. We're live in Oregon City. I'm Keaton Thomas, K2 News. Yeah, and since we talking about ropes, white folks, what you know about ropes? Yeah, what you know about trees and men swinging from them that look like me? To a hate crime on school grounds. That's what's being alleged tonight in Wiggins. Representatives from the NAACP, surrounded by a large group of supporters, gathered outside the Stone County Courthouse today and brought light to an alleged racially motivated incident involving students at Stone High. We're calling on federal investigators to view this as a racial hate crime. With Stacy Payton, the mother of the alleged victim by his side, the president of the Mississippi NAACP, Derek Johnson, described what Payton says happened to her son on October 13th. He was insulted in the way in which individuals took the liberty to lasso a rope around his neck and pull the noose tight. Johnson says up to 20 students have verified the incident happened around the high school football field house. We've learned both the victim and the alleged perpetrator were members of the football team. A source close to the team tells us the victim is still on the team, while the student accused of the assault is no longer on the team and hasn't been seen at school since it took place. The school district hasn't released any disciplinary actions, leading members of the community to ask why. There's no members from the school right here to support this lady and let her know anything. She wants answers and they're not giving her any answers. While Peyton is waiting for answers, Derek Johnson explains why attention needed to be brought to this alleged incident. This type of behavior should not be tolerated, that these incidents should not be swept under the rug, and, and if you tolerate this incident today, you could tolerate much violent behavior in the future. Stone County School Superintendent Anita Owen did release a statement saying she cannot comment on the incident right now. The statement goes on to say, quote, I can assure everyone that the Stone County School District takes all matters involving students very seriously and will do everything within its power to make sure that all policies and procedures were adhered to and that all of its students have a safe place to receive an education. Now, the NAACP says local law enforcement discouraged the alleged victim's mother from filing charges in this incident. The unfortunate part of this scenario, Mrs. Payton did attempt to file charges with the sheriff's department, and she was discouraged from doing so because one of the young men's uh, father is a former law enforcement officer. We spoke with an investigator that says he talked with Ms. Payton. Captain Ray Boggs says he did not discourage Ms. Payton from reporting the incident and has been looking into the allegations since the day he spoke with her, but did let her know that investigating high-profile cases can leave lasting impacts as children can sometimes be mean. We learned just earlier this evening the Stone County Sheriff's Office did alert the District Attorney's Office about the investigation. We'll continue following this story and work to bring you new developments as it all unfolds. The gay rights movement is changing everything. In Center City, a push to fight racism and discrimination in the LGBT community. City leaders, bar owners, and the general public came together in the wake of a growing number of complaints in the gayborhood. Fox 29's Jennifer Joyce tonight with how the city is working to change things for the better. 
Racism is real. It's happening. It's happening every single day. Racism in Philadelphia's LGBTQ community, a hot button ongoing issue that drew hundreds of people out tonight to speak at a hearing before the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations. And to have to confront this again in my life when I've lived through the dog biting days, when I've lived through the two bathrooms, I'll be damned if I want to see it again. The boardroom and two overflow rooms were packed with people who want their voices heard. The issue of racial discrimination in the LGBTQ community gained recent attention after this video surfaced. That beeping is the N-word repeatedly used by the owner of Eye Candy Club in the neighborhood. The owner later issued an apology through Facebook, but for some, that isn't enough. There is nothing that the owner of Eye Candy can do, say, give, or be to me. Roughly 30 bars and restaurants in the city's neighborhood were subpoenaed to attend the meeting and submit their anti-discrimination and dress code policies. Jeff Sotlin, a co-owner of Taboo Lounge and Sports Bar, couldn't attend tonight, but feels the issue must be addressed. A representative spoke on his behalf. We need to dedicate energy and resources toward demanding that all members of the LGBT community be given equality. This is unprecedented for, for this to be happening for the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations to hold an actual hearing, for us to express these stories, these very, very personal stories. Deja Lynn Alvarez, a multiracial trans woman, says she's witnessed discrimination for years. Tonight, she's hopeful to see attendees like Mayor Jim Kenney, a city leader who promises he's listening. It's sad and it makes you it makes your heart break and you realize when you're in a position to change it, it's your responsibility to help change it. Mayor Kenney says after the PCHR reviews tonight's testimony, they'll put together a report with recommendations on how our community can do better the city plans to take a hard look reporting in center city i'm jennifer joyce fox 29 news clintonism defined for quite some time now i've used the term clintonism to describe the perils of neoliberalism but i've never defined the term and therefore some may have let the term slip by undigested and undefined Enter Noam Chomsky, perhaps the most read American intellectual, if only by readers abroad. Journalist and scholar David Barsamian poses a question to Chomsky, and the following exchange is published in the book How the World Works, Barsamian. You can tell a great deal about a society when you look at its system of justice. I was wondering if you'd comment on the Clinton crime bill which authorizes hiring 100,000 more cops, boot camps for juveniles, more money for prisons, extending the death penalty to almost 50 new offenses, and making gang membership a federal crime, which is interesting considering there's something about freedom of association in the Bill of Rights. Chomsky. It was hailed with great enthusiasm by the far right as the greatest anti-crime bill ever. It's certainly the most extraordinary crime bill in history. It's greatly increased by a factor of five or six federal spending for repression. There's nothing much constructive in it. There are more prisons, more police, heavier sentences, more death sentences, new crimes, three strikes and you're out. It's unclear how much pressure and social decline and deterioration people will accept. One tactic is just drive them into urban slums, concentration camps, in effect. 
and let them prey on one another. But they have a way of breaking out and affecting the interests of wealthy and privileged people. So you have to build up the jail system, which is incidentally also a shot in the arm for the economy. It's natural that Clinton picked up this crime bill as a major social initiative, not only for a kind of ugly political reason, namely that it's easy to whip up hysteria about it, but also because it reflects the general point of view of the so-called New Democrats, the business-oriented segment of the Democratic Party to which Clinton belongs. You've been listening to an excerpt from the book How the World Works, Noam Chomsky, interviewed by David Borsami. You know, there's an old saying, you get what you pay for. Here's a new one for you. You get what you vote for. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. You're the smartest man here. You got them all eating out of your hands. You can own this freaking hotel, except for one thing. You're black. You're not even a nigger. You're an African, 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 African. We quit. That's the message South Africa, Burundi, and now Gambia are sending to the International Criminal Court. Their reason? They believe the ICC, which is designed to tackle gross human rights violations, pursues a disproportionate number of cases against African countries. Here's a little background on the ICC. It's governed by an international treaty called the Rome Statute that was signed and ratified by more than 120 countries in 1998. Since then, all 23 cases tried before the court have involved African nations. In fact, nine of its 10 current investigations are related to countries in Africa. So why so much focus on Africa? The ICC's extent of power is limited. It can only investigate crimes in countries that ratified the Rome Statute. To get involved anywhere else, the court needs a referral from the United Nations Security Council, where the United States, China, and Russia have veto power. None of these countries have ratified the Rome Statute, so they don't fall under the jurisdiction of the ICC, making it unlikely they would ever refer themselves. News of African states abandoning the court is stirring division within the African Union. Some countries want to leave, while others want to stay. In fact, the African Union is debating whether to endorse a mass exodus of its members from the ICC. If they do, what does this mean for Africa, the future of the court, and the ability to hold people accountable if human rights abuses are committed? Joining us via Skype in South Africa to discuss this is Michael Masuta. He's South Africa's Minister of Justice and Correctional Services. In Johannesburg, Angela Mudukuti. She's an international criminal justice lawyer. Also in Johannesburg, political analyst Oscar Van Herden. And lastly, Saul Musker. He's a student in Johannesburg and a contributor at the Daily at Maverick. Welcome everyone to the stream. I want to get started on my laptop. So this news broke Tuesday that Gambia has decided to break with the ICC. Now, in a statement seen here in this article via Al Jazeera and the Al Jazeera English website, uh, Sharif Bojang, Gambia's information minister, said the decision is, quote, warranted by the fact that the ICC, despite being called International Criminal Court, is in fact an international Caucasian court for the persecution and humiliation of people of color, especially Africans. African. Minister, is this a fair assessment of the ICC? Well, I wouldn't necessarily want to cast aspersions. Uh, over the institution, 
um, what prompted us, uh, and I can only speak for ourselves as a country, was because of the legal difficulties primarily that we experienced in working with the court. Legal difficulties like what? Make that clear for our audience. Well, first of all, <clears throat> we were under the, now it turns out, uh, erroneous impression that the statute read as a whole uh, was complementary rather than um, having elements of uh, contradiction. So, for example, Article 27, uh, as we understood it, uh, would not be interpreted to suggest that it actually nullifies Article 98, because Article 98 seems to recognize continued application of the customary international law of um, diplomatic immunity that would uh, enable us as a country and, and all other countries in the world which, uh, which subscribe to the Rome Statute, the ability to extend diplomatic immunity, mm. uh, even in instances where they could be accused of uh, crimes committed under the statute, but for the fact that so, uh, diplomatic immunity has been extended to them. Okay. So I, I hear two things here. So I hear from this Gambia statement, uh, the idea that there's a bias towards African countries. And I hear what you're saying is, uh, as for South Africa, one of the things that you took issue with was uh, the lack of being able to allow diplomatic immunity for uh, leaders. Angela, I want you to weigh in here on those two things and whether or not you think that they are reason enough to leave the ICC. I don't think they're reason enough to leave the ICC because if you look at it, a majority of the cases currently before the court, a lot of them are self-referrals where autonomous, independent African governments have referred the situation in their own country to the ICC. So it's more Africans making use of the court they helped create because let's not forget there wouldn't be an international criminal court were it not for the African votes that brought the Rome Statute into force. So that's the first element. And then with regard to South Africa domestically, South Africa not only signed and ratified the Rome Statute, but South Africa domesticated it, made it law in this country, domestic law in this country. And at that point, every single provision of the legislation was carefully considered and a conscious decision was made to make sure that there is no immunity for heads of state or senior government officials because no one is above the law. You know, when you bring that up, you know, no one being above the law, we have a lot of comments coming in. I'm not going to read them all, but Malika, you kind of brought this up. You know, a lot of people confused or even frustrated that, you know, it seems as though Africa gets the, the you know, the wrong end of the stick. the stick. Yeah, the right. short end mm -hmm. of the stick, exactly. Uh, Dylan saying on Twitter, the AU should set up its own criminal court. We can't be under imperialism anymore. Who's messed up? Syria, Libya, Iraq, charge them. A lot of people drawing different, uh, you know, different ways of drawing the same conclusion, which is that Africans uh, see the ICC as a neo-colonialism neo tool used by the West until all United Nations Security Council joins the ICC, the perception would not change. So with that in mind, you know, and all these kinds of, uh, you know, discussions about why then is it only Africa, what, what do you think about that? I mean, don't, doesn't this really just pave the way for other people to follow in suit? Angela? Well, well it doesn't actually because... It's true. The ICC does have a disproportionate number of African cases. But at the end of the day, if you look at all those cases, there is evidence that suggests crimes have been committed and they should be investigated. However, what I will say is part of the ICC's problem is the United Nations Security Council referral, where permanent members can veto 
referrals and permanent members three of the five who are not signatories to the Rome Statute. So that also adds to this perception of bias. I don't think that the ICC itself is targeting Africa. And I also think that African states, who, by the way, constitute the biggest regional block of signatories, need to proactively engage with the ICC to amend this perception and to amend situations where bias has been generated. But there's been very little engagement in that respect. And now it seems the solution is to withdraw, which I don't think is constructive. I don't think bodes well for the victims of these crimes. And particularly because our own domestic systems haven't been able to try genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity effectively. So I, I hear you saying, Angela, that you don't necessarily think that it's bias. Oscar, I, I want you to bring you in here, uh, a couple of people on Twitter, uh, saying that they think the exact opposite. So this is MG, who says, because they refuse to prosecute Bush, the former uh, U.S. president, despite obvious evidence that he committed war crimes. Another person, this is Omar on Twitter, saying, I agree, because Israel, USA, Britain, and some other big shots have committed multiple crimes, but they weren't even questioned. Oscar, uh, bias, does that play a role here? No, absolutely. I mean, thanks, Malika. You know, in terms of my article, I take issue precisely with this duality uh, phenomenon. The fact that rights and responsibilities within the international system seems to apply, uh, being applied differently to depending on whether you are in the powerful uh, category and, and, and the north and uh, whether you are in the weak, uh, which is in the south. And for me, that really is the, the, the crux of the matter. I mean, just to respond to, to mm -hmm. one thing uh, that Angela said, you know, when you when she says you we've domesticated the Rome statute with our own customary laws within South Africa, indeed that did happen. But uh, I'm sure, as as someone who takes an interest in, in in legal issues, you can never cover all the grounds. Law is always subject to interpretation. There's always contradictions, um, and depending on which jurist you are uh, approaching, they will have different interpretations of the very law. And so I think that. The fact that the South African government has now, at this point, having experienced a particular challenge with regards to Omar al-Bashir, um, have now realized that perhaps there is some contradiction, um, is, is wanting the, the courts uh, in South Africa to clarify that issue. Now let me just say, we have extraordinary appreciation and respect for the vast majority of police officers who put their lives on the line to protect us every single day. They've got a dangerous job. It is a tough job. More police. That's one of the items in Seattle Mayor Ed Murray's latest budget. But some activists want the opposite. They want the city to defund the police. Seattle attorney Nikita Oliver is an anti-racism activist. She says defunding the Seattle Police Department is just the first step to a culture that doesn't need police at all. One, I think we need a cultural shift in how we think about peace and how we think about how people, um, about our own individual sovereignty as humans, but also how we all control our own behavior. Uh, as a teacher in a classroom, I can do everything I want to to police the behavior of my students, but reality is they control themselves. I think society is constructed in a lot of the same ways, that we don't need a separate institution to keep the peace or enforce the laws. What we need is a cultural shift that actually acknowledges the human rights, dignity, and sovereignty of all people. And we'd see a lot of the crimes that we use to justify the police decrease or the reasons that we say we need police to keep peace. Um, What's a crime that would go away? I think drug crimes could go away. 
which would require some decriminalization. We have a lot of crimes that we um, have criminalized uh, as a means of social control. So we say we don't like it when drug addicts use in public. So then what we do is we create laws against drug use instead of creating something like a safe injection site where folks who do choose to use drugs or maybe are dealing with addiction can go to that safe injection site. And we are changing our drug laws in many places, including Washington. But what do you say to somebody who's the victim of a rape, a murder, a home invasion who says that's what the police are for? Yeah. So looking at our statistics from from 2016, um, There have been 124 rapes in 2016 in our county. And so of the 30,972 calls that have been made, 124 were rapes. That percentage is incredibly small. And so it's not to say that we won't need some sort of mechanism for addressing crimes of harm. But there are other mechanisms that we know of globally, uh, worldwide, that can be used to address that, to be more restorative and to be less punitive. What are those methods? Restorative justice is community-based accountability. It's the idea that any time an issue happens, the community as a whole is actually responsible for that issue happening. It's not just... um, quote, unquote, perpetrator, offender, um, and victim. It's it's everyone within the community played a role in that particular outcome. And so what restorative justice hopes to do is to look at everyone involved and ask ourselves, what can we do to restore ourselves back to a healthy, balanced, functioning community? And in the instance of rape, there are so many reasons why it occurs. And the goal of restorative justice is not simply to deal with that one instance, but it's to also ask ourselves what other factors were surrounding that rape that made it possible. How do we begin to alleviate and eliminate those factors so rape slowly becomes something we don't deal with anymore? What about saying maybe restorative justice is the vision for the future. But today we still need police. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that I'm going to walk out of KUOW today and all of a sudden we're going to be able to fully dismantle the policing institution. I mean, it's been in play for a, a long time. I think what has to happen is we need the goal of the cultural shift that allows us to dismantle the policing institution. There are a lot of people in power who feel safe with the police. So even considering that there are marginalized um, or grassroots organizers or communities that don't consider police safe is is so far outside of their paradigm, they can't imagine it. So how do you then get a whole group of people who see the policing institution as keeping them safe to acknowledge a group of people who have never felt safe with police? And I think that's part of the struggle we're in right now. And I see that happening in the city of Seattle where we're having these conversations everywhere from from city hall to classrooms. I mean, even in schools, we're asking ourselves, is it appropriate to have school resource officers or they're actually Seattle Police Department officers in middle schools? I don't think it is. And a lot of students are afraid of police officers. So then to go from the street where you're afraid of police officers and then go to school where you're afraid of police officers, we create a context where young people can't learn. And so I do think what we're really thinking about is you're correct. It's having that goal of dismantling, but also building redistributing those funds and those resources to something that creates a safer environment for everyone that's going to require people to begin to see the different ways in which different people are forced to engage law enforcement. What about the goal of better police instead of fewer police, better trained police, more accountable police? I I hear that argument a lot. Um, And I think it's the way that we go when we're comfortable with incremental reform. When we say over time, we can get um, a culturally better policing institution. I think reality is people are so comfortable with social control 
because they are not comfortable with other people. I would rather know that when I am uncomfortable with my neighbor, I can simply just call the cops and the cops will deal with it. And that has some incredibly um, traumatic outcomes for a lot of people. Think about Seattle as a city that's rapidly gentrifying. Uh, A story one of my youth told me is he went home to his house in the Central District. He got into his home with a key. Uh, He left, went to a store, and then came back again. And when he came back, the Seattle Police Department was at his house because his neighbor, who just moved into the home next door to him, called the cops on him because she didn't know who he was. Now, this this is a young 16-year-old black male. He's been living in that house next to her house almost his entire life. And so her idea of who he was, she had an immediate fear that he didn't belong there. So what she did was call the police, which then ended up in a pretty negative encounter for this young man with the cops. Because then he had to explain, actually, this is my home. And it almost amounted in an arrest for him. So when we consider the issue of social control alongside our discomfort with our neighbors and how much we just don't get to know people, I think it actually results in an environment that leads to the sort of murders that we've been seeing. On the flip side of it, I think police are also scared. They're also human beings, right? I think the policing institution as a whole creates a segment of society where they can be scared, but also then be expected to keep social control. And I think that's a lot of responsibility for an individual human. So the whole setup is one of, if you think of it, of inhumanity and mistrust. Absolutely. We've set ourselves up for that. We have. We have set ourselves up to, to dehumanize other humans based on what we consider law enforcement. When you talk about dismantling the police department with police, current or former, how do they react? I've, I've spoken with police officers before um, in, in different types of situations, sometimes at community meetings. I've been on panels with police officers where we've had this conversation. But also when I serve as a legal observer and in the streets at a protest, I, I from time to time I will engage in conversation with officers. I mean, they're, they're human beings, right? Um, and their responses vary. I think it, it, it depends on how long they've been in the force, how much they've seen, um, why they became a police officer. Uh, I know someone who became a sheriff, and after being a sheriff for only a year, realized there were just so many egregious violations of people's rights that he was expected to not only participate in but also keep silent, that he just left the sheriffs because he felt like there was no way he could change it from the inside. Do you think people in Seattle are especially wedded to police because we're uncomfortable with one another? You talked about a discomfort with our neighbors. Yeah, that's not everybody in Seattle, but yeah. I've heard that you heard you've heard the Seattle freeze uh, <laughs> label. And I'm from Indiana, so when I first moved here, it was definitely a different world for me. I think as gentrification has taken hold, and we see people pushed out of their homes, not just in the Central District, but also in Ballard. I would venture to say people from Ballard have been pushed to the Central District, right? Um, as people get pushed out and moved around, we naturally don't know who's around us, and as humans as animals when we don't know who's around us there's a sense of fear and i think to get over fear actually requires um work you have to be willing to go get to know the other person and so i do think that contributes to why we leaned so heavily on the on the policing institution as opposed to getting to know our neighbors and finding ways to to deal with conflict so if not police aren't you talking about basically neighborhood watch groups You know, that's a place where um, I think we have some really complicated conversations we have to have. Uh, Neighborhood watch groups in a lot of ways come historically from what we watch the Black Panthers do, 
which was um, you had communities of black and brown folks whose interactions with police were continuously problematic. So what we said was we're going to create our own group who will um, protect us, but also police the police. A lot of what the Black Panthers did was they would actually follow the police around when they saw them stop somebody. They would observe it. They would help people know their rights when uh, interacting with police. And that was in a lot of ways, especially here in Seattle, some of the earliest versions of Neighborhood Watch. Uh, when we look at a case like what happened with Trayvon Martin and uh, the vigilante George Zimmerman, we see neighborhood watch gone wrong. And I think we've also seen this in Seattle. Um, I went to a neighborhood watch meeting with uh, Chief O'Toole, um, and she was having a conversation with them. I believe it was in West Seattle of some things that had happened. And the neighborhood watch group was incredibly afraid of the people that they said were coming into their neighborhood. But in a lot of ways, I think these this is, again, the result of gentrification. These were actually people who had lived in that neighborhood for a long time and people didn't know them. So neighborhood watch without a cultural shift is going to result in more incidents of murder like with Trayvon Martin. That's Nikita Oliver, a Seattle attorney and anti-racism activist, telling you her vision of a different model of justice, a community-based restorative justice instead of a punitive government police force. And she says that's not going to happen right away. She's looking forward. Can you see the pride in the panther as he clothes in splendor and grace? Toppling obstacles faced in the way of the progression of his race. Can you see the pride in the panther as she nurtures her young all alone? The seed must go regardless the fact that it's planted in stone. Can't you see the pride in the panther? As they unify as one, the flowers bloom. Fifty years ago this month, a small group of African-American activists in Oakland got together and decided to take a different kind of strategy in the fight for civil rights. They formed what was initially called the Black Panther Party of Self-Defense, and it did look like an army of sorts. Members wore berets and black leather jackets. They carried rifles. To the communities they served, the Black Panthers were seen as vigilantes. But to law enforcement, they were a threat. The Oakland police have had more than their share of racial difficulties. The Black Panthers are their sworn enemies. and this FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover today asserted that the Black Panthers represent the greatest internal threat to the nation. Hoover said the Panthers have perpetrated numerous assaults on police and have engaged in violent confrontations throughout the country. Bobby Seale was one of the founders of the group. If you know the history and understand what our principles and our policies was, media and politicians and the counterintelligence program took everything totally out of context of what we were about. Seal has tried to put his movement into context. 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 Bobby Seal joins us now along with the Panthers' longtime photographer, Stephen Shames. You say Shames or Shames? Shames. Shames. Today uh, and together they have a new book of words and images called Power to the People, the World of the Black Panthers. We posted a couple of images on our webpage if you want to see what some of the images from the book look like at WNYC.org. Click on Brian Lair Show. Thanks very much for coming on. Welcome to WNYC. Thank okay. you. We have a lot of long, younger listeners who don't know that much about the Black Panthers and don't know that much about you. So, Bobby Seale, let me start here. The book says... The assassination of Malcolm X here in New York in February 1965 
was a turning point in your life. Can you recall how the killing of Malcolm X affected you and influenced the founding of the Black Panther Party? Well, it was a turn, it was a turning point that I dedicated myself to what I call my black liberation struggle. I dedicated myself. But the real point of me causing me to get into this get into the protest movement struggle was really Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, two years before that, three years before that, in fact. Uh, it was Martin Luther King who I went to hear speak at the Oakland Auditorium holding 7,000 people. And it was Dr. King who was talking about how we have to organize and get black people jobs in this country and go up against institutionalized racism and how many companies will not, uh, will not hire uh, black folks. And I remember Dr. King very, very clearly at one point in his speech, and he was speaking about the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Area, where we were. He says, and here in the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Area, Langendorf Bread Company and Kilpatrick's Bread Company would not hire any people of color. He says, and all across America, I say, Wonder Bread Company will not hire any people of color. I say, we're going to have to boycott them, and we want to boycott them so consistently and so profoundly. We want to make Wonder Bread wonder where the money went. <laughs> and that just broke that audience. And then 7,000 people, and I'm just one individual, hit the floor in applause. I was totally inspired by this man. And you do a good Martin Luther King. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm a stand-up comedian and other <laughs> things and jazz drum and all that other kind of stuff. But And Bobby, the original name was the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, but it became known as the Black Panthers. Did self-defense get officially dropped after a while? It took about a year and a half. Too many people c kept confusing us as a paramilitary group, and we were a political group. We are a political organization with a full 10-point program that dealt with employment issues, decent housing, uh, preventative medical health care, and the police brutality, fair treatment in the courts, etc. Which and is reprinted in the book, by the way. I'll right. mention the What We Want Now 10-point yeah, list. It's, it's, it's often printed, but the most important part of that point program in writing that, I saw to it that I used the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence, you know, a paraphrasing of the Declaration of Independence, United States of America, to summarize that ten-point platform and program. So that's what's most important to get the summer of what our action was and and how we were political, rather than paramilitary. But I'd like to play a recording of you from a moment in 1967 that Stephen writes about near the beginning of the book and you come to later, and ask you to reflect on it now. This is you at a protest against a gun control bill in the California state legislature that Ronald Reagan, as governor of California, was in favor of. Ronald Reagan is over here on the big front lawn. I got a statement to read. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense calls upon the American people in general, and the black people in particular, to take careful note of the racist California legislature, which is now considering legislation aimed at keeping the black people disarmed and powerless at the very same time racist police agencies throughout the country are intensifying the terror, brutality, murder, and repression of black people. 
you do a good Bobby Seale as well as a good Martin Luther King. <laughs> but we also played that clip earlier this week as part of a history of the gun rights versus gun control movements. Do you recall the circumstances? I, I, I recall all the circumstances. In fact, uh, Ronald Reagan was out on the front lawn talking to a group of uh, <clears throat> a hundred or so youth, 10, 12, and 15 years old or something like that. And as we walked up the big broad walk, the kids left Ronald Reagan to come over to see us. They thought we were a new, neat, neat gun club, you know what I mean? And they, need, they knew the kind of weapons we had, neat 30-odd six, et cetera, and so on. Uh, in effect, I wanted to go inside after I read my statement to the press, and then I wanted to go to the, to the, uh, excuse me, to the spectator section, which you can view the, the assembly in the process of making law. And this, and and the, this horde of press, fifty, sixty press people, leading me down the halls, a big crowd, et cetera. Several people got ahead of me and my my crew. They got went into the actual chambers. I'm looking for the spectators, and then when I get there, we're in the wrong place. And the president protect. Then the cameras rush in, following these five party members in front of me with their shotguns just resting on their shoulders, you know what I mean? And uh, the president pro is banging the gavel that the press is not allowed on the floor while the assembly's in session. Bam, bam, bam. He's grabbing the Actually, he's not even noticing the guns on the guy's shoulders. And I run in, and I'm trying to say, hey, you guys, come on, man, get out of here. We're in the wrong place. This is not the spectator section, damn it. Come on, come on. And other guys is ducking under the seat. Some of the state assemblymen, the assemblymen are ducking under. I'm saying, hey, you guys, I'm sorry. These guys led me in the wrong place. Come on, you guys, we're in the wrong place. Really, that's really what happened. And I say that because immediately after that, in the press, Ronald Reagan is calling us hoodlums and thugs, invading the Capitol, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I went there to read a simple statement about a piece of legislation that was going to try to stop. We'd been patrolling police for six months, observing police, and that's how legal we were. See, when the police, when, they, when we first went out there, I remember that January night we went out there, uh, the cop says, you have no right to observe us. I says, no, California State Supreme Court ruling states that every citizen has a right to stand and observe a police officer carrying out their duty as long as they stand a reasonable distance away. A reasonable distance that particular ruling was constituted as 8 to 10 feet. We're standing approximately 20 feet from you, and we observe it whether you like it or not. Now, we're citing the law to the cop. We have guns. We're not pointing guns. Why? Because there's a law against pointing loaded guns at anyone, even if you have no intention of shooting and just waving around, you point a loaded gun under California law, it constituted assault with a deadly weapon. We knew every law in conjunction with our civil rights and the whole. And this is what. But blew. that law was intended <clears throat> to uh, stop you from even displaying the weapons? No. What they did is they made a law, Mulford that said you cannot carry a loaded weapon inside city limits within 150 feet of public property, and public property included all roadways and byways. So you would have to be 150 feet from the public sidewalk before you could load your weapon. And then what this constitutes a loaded weapon, a loaded weapon. See, every law we know, a loaded weapon is a live round in the chamber, not the magazine. Etc. But so that was aimed at the Panther Patrol. It was Patrol. aimed specifically at us because we were patrolling the police for six months quite legally all around the San Francisco, Oakland Bay Area. And 
And, in effect, they made this law. What we did is we went on the radio and went on television and said, okay, we'll keep our guns inside our houses, and we'll still observe the police, et cetera. But by this time, we've already captured the imagination of the people. Mm-hmm. And by here is where the, it was a tactic to patrol the police to capture the imagination of the and people, get more people coming so I could organize a political electoral machine. Party members did not have to carry guns. What I'm trying to say is party members who join, you do not have to carry guns. We have other programs we're going to organize around, et cetera, and we're going to get people registered to vote so we can take over some political seats so we can change the racist laws. And, Stephen, you wrote in the book, compare this, meaning that same moment we played the clip from and that whole issue of that law, to the reaction when after a white man killed 20 children at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012, conservatives in Congress defeated President Obama's attempt to limit rapid-firing assault weapons while right-wing commentators vilified him and the National Rifle Association advocated arming teachers. What point are you making with that comparison? Well, the, the point I'm making is, is that when white people carry guns openly, that's patriotism. When black people carry guns openly, that's seen as a threat, and they pass a law against it. And, and in, in the 1966 or whatever, when, when the Mulford Act was, was passed, um, the NRA said nothing. Everyone was just totally silent on it. Um, the Panthers did not carry assault weapons, by the way. They carried... Shotguns and rifles, that's all we carried. They, exactly. Pistols. They carried shotguns, pistols, and rifles, which are self-defense weapons, not offensive, um, not offensive weapons. Um, and, and so I, I just wanted to make the point that I think, you know, there's a little bit of hypocrisy involved and, and possibly racism involved um, in, and the part of some of the right-wing commentators who, who send out these literature, Obama's going to take away your gun, um, when in fact, what Obama's proposed is is number one, just limiting um, rapid firing assault weapons. Number two, having checks for mental health issues, and number three, keeping people who we won't let fly in airplanes um, have rapid fire assault weapons, which is a very minor compared to what they passed against the Panthers, which, mm-hmm. uh, which was effectively a total gun control. There's an anecdote in the book about the very first patrol interaction with the police. A group of Panthers, led by the Panthers' co-founder, Huey Newton, responded to a traffic stop and simply watched the officer arrest the driver. When confronted by the officer, Newton asserted his Second Amendment right to bear arms and his right to observe police officers from a reasonable distance. That approach seems gone today. We associate the Second Amendment people, those who declare their Second Amendment rights very loudly and publicly, with that NRA mindset that Stephen was just talking about. While Black Lives Matter and other social justice and racial justice groups of today do not advocate carrying arms as they fight or monitor police brutality. I I don't advocate it either. Look, in, in the last 30 years that I have been sending out bioinformation to colleges and universities, I've spoken to over 550 colleges in my lifetime, but my point is this here. I explain in, in that bio, today you do not need guns. In fact, we got the technology 
the technology is good enough because we can now record and capture and have a a mass people's cop watch program. And then the guns, in effect, after the Mulford Act, we did not walk down the street with guns and carry open guns. But we found certain laws. For instance, when the Ku Klux Klan flushed, what, 3,000 uh, letters and stuff threatening to kill and murder us, et cetera, and so on, so on, so on, so on. I had all my party members all across the country copy every one of these and send the original letters in, and we sent the original to my, our lawyers, and we had that, and then found other laws connected with kidnapping laws. If you believe love, love, your loved one's lives may be in danger, a person can actually carry a concealed weapon without a permit under California law. I don't mm -hmm. know about other states. I'm just saying, and we carried it. And I packed a 357 Magnum Python when I organized around the community, either in the glove compartment or sometime I would strap it on. My brother, John Seal, was arrested three times carrying his 9 millimeter in those organizing days. And Charles R. Gary would call the DA over there and says, you know, seal it under this law, man. And they let him give my brother his gun back. Yeah, I mean, but you said you don't need to anymore because of technology. I so. said at a certain period in history. And right now you don't need to run around with guns and watch out about this open carry stuff. This open carry stuff is to get you out there and, uh, and, and, and this stand your ground crap. These are laws that they're, that they're allowing right-wingers and so-called patriotic to have the right to shoot and kill you, you know what I mean? So don't need the laws. Use the peaceful demonstration methodology. Understand the value of the peaceful protests. Bobby Seale and Steve Shames have a new book, Power to the People, the World of the Black Panthers. Uh, you can see one of Stephen's photographs on our website. Go to WNYC.org and click on Brian Lair Show for uh, one little taste. And if you want to see them in person, they will be in conversation with filmmaker Byron Hurt at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. That's at 515 Malcolm X. Uh, tonight in Harlem at 630, 515 Malcolm X Boulevard. If you haven't been to the Schomburg Center before, it's free, but registration is required. You can find the link on our webpage as well, wnyc.org. Click on Brian Lair Show if you want to go to that 630 Tonight event and an exhibition of the visual work is currently on view at the Stephen Kasher Gallery in Chelsea. That's at 515 West 26th Street. Thanks so much for coming in today. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, October 29th, 2016. So I have been told this is the compensatory call-in. Feel free to dial in with your observations, suggestions, thoughts, questions. Uh, the number is 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. That number again is 641-715-3640. The code is 
pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Again, this is listener supported counter racist radio. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you're not into PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Again, huge thanks to all the folks uh, who have supported, invested uh, nearly eight years. I hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, With that, a few quick things before uh, we get to folks who dialed in on the phone line. Again, give out a, uh, just a quick reminder. Uh, we started a new book on the book club, Lothrop Stoddard, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. We just started it yesterday. Dr. Welsing uh, strongly encouraged that we read this book, black people in particular. Uh, she spent time talking about it at her uh, last uh, Crest Welsing Institute lecture. Uh, really looking forward to going through and studying. I hope it'll be a great session. As I said, we just started yesterday, so you can tune in with us this coming Friday for section number two. We are very early in the book, only on chapter two. It's available for free online. Let me know if you need a copy. Hopefully we'll have great participation for the duration of the book. Next. Uh, The segment, the last news clip that you heard uh, about the Black Panther Party, the 50 year anniversary, it's been a lot of commentary uh, about their anniversary for most of the year. Uh, Just that segment uh, where you heard Bobby Seale uh, speaking, it reminded me, I think I've mentioned this on the program before, but it just it bears repeating Uh, back in. 2008, they had uh, the 40 year anniversary of the Seattle Black Panther Party chapter and their activities here. And they had lots of uh, different events and they had a lot of uh, posters and uh, just things to celebrate and recognize uh, all types of things that took place in 1968 here in Seattle, Washington. And so back in the springtime, uh, in 08, they had a like event on the campus of the University of Washington. Aaron Dixon was there. Uh, he ran for political office unsuccessfully. Uh, Here in Seattle, he was a member of the Seattle chapter of the Black Panthers. He spoke. I mentioned the conversation we had afterwards where he looked at me like I was, you know, a crazy nigger. Um, The next day, right after the Thursday meeting, they had another event. This was at uh, Seattle Central Community College. And Aaron Dixon was there. Bobby Seale was there. I think they had some other members of the local Panther chapter present as well. Bobby Seale was the main speaker. Uh, he talked for about an hour or so. I had, you know, no issue with what he said at all. Uh, victim of racism anyway, so he would have VGQ, but he made his presentation. It was a beautiful spring day. I remember coming outside. The one that Friday was early in the morning, so it was a sunny, lovely day. I went outside as soon as the event was over, and this race soldier, white female, she worked at Madison Market, which is like a block up the road from Seattle Central Community College where the event was. And she comes over and she says, wow, that Bobby Seal, he was entertaining and funny. From that moment, I said, I don't care what happens. I might not solve the problem of racism and I'm pretty ignorant, pretty retarded. But I want to make sure that if I ever go out and give any talk or presentation on racism and whites are present, they will not say 
that Gusty Renegade was entertaining and funny. That is number one. The second thing, uh, the very first clip that was talking about workplace racism, I almost saved that uh, for this coming Thursday when we do our workplace racism. But they were talking about some of these uh, unresolved disputes, labor disputes that have carried on for over a decade, 12 years, and they still have uh, no decision about all of this. Uh, that reminded me, not just of workplace racism, but since it was happening in Anchorage, Alaska, it reminded me of Charlo Green, the lovely Charlo Green, who was just with us uh, about a week or so ago. Uh, we were doing our programs earlier this month uh, up in Anchorage and her facing more than 50 years of uh, prison time, possibly. Those same people who were terrorizing those black people on the job up there in Anchorage, those are going to be the folks sitting on her jury. Uh, coming up next year uh, when she, you know, we see what's going to happen with all of her pending charges. But it reminded me immediately uh, of Charlotte Green. Uh, with that, I will stop and allow other folks to get in their commentary, whatever they would like to share. Uh, if I could remind folks, number one, if you could take five minutes, uh, that way everybody has an opportunity to share. I will try to monitor that as best I can. Also, if you could watch the background noise, if you know you are in a noisy environment, if you could use your mute button, that would be super appreciated. Uh, just I try to unmute people as I see hands, uh, but if you could just mute your line, if you know people are talking or you're someplace where there's a television on or what have you, say whatever you need to say and then mute your line. That'll preserve the quality of the broadcast. Uh, also ask for this program and it's only the compensatory call in on Saturdays. If we could not use metaphors, uh, it's been uh, really it's my conclusion. Whites, racists, they do this frequently to spread confusion. Uh, this is a part of the deception package to compare things, to contrast things, to make false equivalents, uh, things that they know are not equal, things that are not even remotely similar, but they will put them together as though they are close. Uh, I think a lot of times non-white people, we do this just in our frustration, confusion and trying as best we can to articulate racism, white supremacy. We've picked up a lot of bad habits from racists. Uh, and I think a lot of times uh, just trying to be exact and correct in our own head about what we mean, what we want to say. I think sometimes we end up using metaphors that are not the most helpful uh, in minimizing confusion and making sure that we are giving obvious, explicit unambiguous commentary on racism and or counter racism. So no metaphors. I will prompt about that as well. Just be exact, specific, make it plain uh, with what we are saying. Uh, with that, we will go ahead and hit the phone lines. The number again, 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, at least the first few people who dialed in with a hand up, your line should be open. Feel free. Copy heard. Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Um, good evening to all the callers and listeners. Tom Smith in New York. Um, let's listen to the clips. I don't know if um, others observed um, when they were talking about the African American Museum. Uh, but the guy kind of said, you know, like, uh, how do you think it fit in around all the white marble structures and this being a bronze building? I thought that was very interesting um, that that even came up. 
And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really questioning this museum because I wonder if they're um, planning on extincting us and um, that now they have a place where white people could go and say, look, this is, these were the Negroes, you know. I'm just very skeptical about it. I don't never see them doing anything to help us. So I just really want to know why they put that there. Um, the ICC, the clip about the African um, courts, and, um, you know, yeah, that's all neo that's all neo colonialism, which is the the goal, the the the, the end result of national uh, neoliberalism, um, and you know for Russia, Russia, Britain, U.S., France to keep getting away with the crimes they get away with, and um, these these poor little African countries who might have um, had a little war crime where twenty five hundred people let's just say died. You know, they're going to, you know, you got this court here, but, you know, the United States might have just bombed 2,500 people today. You know, it's just, um, it's just really just a way for them to control Africa. And I think it's, uh, I'm glad that these countries are trying to get out of that. Um, they should have never got into it. Um, you know, I hate the Clinton crime bill. And um, I heard Mamiya, and I've heard a lot coming up about it in the media, and I've been trying to put it into context. Why they keep talking about the crime bill? It worked perfectly for them. And, um, you know, now this keeps being attacked. And I noticed they keep showcasing blacks to attack it. It's been in place for like 30 years. And um, now that you have all these white addicts and white dealers, this is why they want to attack this crime bill now so they don't have to have the three strikes and they're out. And they don't have to get the mandatory minimums that we got got people still in jail from the 80s and 90s, um, you know, I think it's time to strengthen the Clinton crime bill. Um, I think that this crime bill is proof. You know, I hear a lot of black people especially talk about there's some type of liberal and progressives in their political agenda. The domestic policy in the United States towards black people is always conservative. They don't, you know, this was a democratic bill, and this was uh, most racist legislation probably since the 13th Amendment. Um, you know, the, the domestic policy is always how to deal with niggers. And um, it's always going to be conservative, regardless of what type of title these white people put in front of their names, liberal, progressive. Uh, I think that that clip which you played where they were talking about um, Bobby Sale and Martin Luther King, you know, I, I, when he was um, doing his um, little impression of Martin Luther King, you know, it got me thinking Martin Luther King was uh, a genius because um, I listened to hours of his speeches. And in some cases, I think he was even more radical than uh, the Nation of Islam because he um, he named names. He named white people. He named businesses. He said we shouldn't go to these businesses. And I thought that was very, very good. And they never really bring that up when they talk about him or teach you about him in school. But um, he was about boycotting. He was about... Um, making people feel it in their pockets, making people know that we're not going to their businesses. And I thought that was a much more practical approach that could be used today. Now, last thing I wanted to say is um, the last couple of weeks I've been uh, working at the hospital. And I used to say schools was the second most racist institution, you know, physical buildings that you could go in. Of course, court being yeah, number one, nothing will ever top that. But um, the last couple of weeks in the emergency room, I think um, the hospital institution has um, 
schools beat out by far. Um, I've seen more racist, not workplace, I mean, just outright outlandish racism in this hospital uh, and the difference between black treatment and white treatment. And um, um, just, I mean, it's, it's really heartbreaking. And um, a bunch of guys who I work with, I noticed that they talk about drinking a lot. And I think that they do that because after, you know, years of seeing this, you know, even though they're not, it's, it's in their subconscious, but they, they don't know why. But this, this trauma of black people um, and the way they're treated, it's, um, you know, I think that weighs on people after a while. You know, of course, I expected it. So uh, it just further solidifies my stance. But um, totally um, the second most racist institution I've seen so far outside of the courthouse. I'm mute my line. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, good evening uh, to everybody. Good evening, guys. Um, I worked backwards. Um, I took a couple, couple of notes and just observations. Um, I'm not a uh, weapons person. Um, so when they said uh, they were mentioning self-defense weapons and not offensive weapons, um, I, didn't know, I didn't know that there was a difference. Um, I just kind of found that interesting when they were speaking in reference to the um, – the Black Panther Party. Um, I also wrote the same as you said, Gus, with um, the, gentr- the, the gentleman interviewing uh, Bobby Seale was very casual on such a serious topic, but I guess that's what um, suspected white supremacists uh, they do. Um, the victim, the young lady that was speaking, uh, I think she was in, she's uh, on the West Coast and she was talking about the police and she said a couple things that uh, were a little confusing. Uh, she mentioned culturally better, uh, culturally better policing institutions, and I would just like to ask her what that means. She also mentioned that police are scared, um, and I just think that that term is actually inaccurate because I don't believe that you know police are scared in the system of white supremacy, and not having police, um, in my view, that's not ever going to happen. Um, because also based upon the book that we were reading yesterday, the one thing I came away from is that white people do not want peace under any circumstances. They, I, I don't even know if they even attempted it. Um, and that could be said for some non-white people as well, but in the system that we're in right, right now, uh, white people do not want peace. Um, just nationally, the, uh, the, the, the balance, I mean, uh, the, the budget for Department of Defense is $597 billion, um, so that's a lot, and, and that drives a lot of jobs all over the world, nationally and internationally, and that would put a huge dent if people actually started acting constructively. Um, and then there was one other thing that I found, um, I believe it was in the, I have it in front of me, it was in the newspaper today, yeah, it was in the New York Times, and it was an article uh, in reference to uh, HIV vaccines and how the vaccines actually got here and how there was something that happened to where they said it was a single individual uh, that was credited with bringing the vaccine over here. And I was reading just the article today, and there was a one line that said, Haiti was also a sex tourism destination for gay men. Another route the virus could have taken to New York. And I've never even heard that a long time ago, or currently, that Haiti was at one point um, a sex tourism destination for heroin, 
or, for heterosexual or all, all people who classify themselves as homosexuals. And I thought about that. Um, I wasn't going to mention it today, but when they kept talking about gayborhood, um, I immediately uh, kind of thought about that and just found it very, very interesting that out of all these years, I've never, ever heard of people going to Haiti uh, for sex, but typically for all those tourism destinations, the majority of people that go there for sex are people who classify themselves as white. And I'll, I'll go ahead and mute my line. Uh, before we get some of our other callers, uh, the only thing I was going to say was uh, the article that he's talking about in the New York Times. It's uh, HIV arrived in the U.S. long before patient zero. I think that's the article he's talking about that was just a couple days ago. And then with regards to the Black Panther segment, where they were talking about the types of weapons, and he said uh, that they had, like, shotguns and rifles and pistols, that those are not offensive weapons. Uh, I think some part of the uh, metric for judging what constitutes a weapon being designated, this is something for self-defense, and this is something is offensive. I think part of that is whether or not it is an automatic firing uh, weapon. I think that is part of how they figure out whether we're going to say that this is an offensive weapon or this is something that's for self-defense, uh, but I could be in error. I also thought it was significant in that clip that uh, he said that the white children that were there at the state capitol in Sacramento, that they knew the type of weapons that they had. Racist child. I thought that was extremely important. Other folks that we haven't heard from who have a hand up, do you have commentary? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you guys. Um, greetings to Thomas in New York and the previous call and all the other callers and listeners. Um, I just wanted to piggyback off of the previous caller in regards to uh, Haiti being uh, that, that article. I did read the article as well. And um, Haiti being a, a quote unquote tourism destination uh, for white people. I think he's completely accurate. Um, me, excuse me, me being of Trinidadian descent, I can say unequivocally that the islands for hundreds of years have been havens for different groups of white people who go there to sexually uh, terrorize and practice sexual deviance on the uh, people who live in those areas. And actually that is how AIDS spread through those areas was due to um, homosexual and heterosexual uh, white people going to these islands um, and practicing racism, essentially, and spreading the germs that they that they are vectors of. So, absolutely, he's correct with that. Um, also, I wanted to just touch on what uh, Thomas in New York brought up in regards to the hospital uh, being the most second racist place. Um, I could definitely strongly agree with that, with the experiences that my family has had uh, just trying to uh, handle being caretakers for my in-laws. And my father-in-law specifically being uh, going in and out of the hospital um, over the past few years um, on a few occasions, the kind of um, information that uh, Vanilla Randall had talked about in regards to when you go to the hospital and you're not well, to have someone uh, advocate for you who is not sick, a person who is clear-minded and who has your best interest, we found that to be one of the most important pieces of counter-racist information that we've been able to put to great use and asking tons of questions and not letting them, um, not letting uh, any of the racist doctors and or nurses 
get away with not answering the questions and um, making sure that we push for as much information as possible so that we can make uh, clear and decisive decisions to protect our loved ones. So that's something that is very important. Um, so I'm glad that, that Thomas brought that up. Um, the clip that you played about the black child that was terrorized by the white school students at the school in Oregon, again, just kind of, I think these, all of these things where, where they're talking about young people um, committing acts of white supremacy are things that we should be showing to our children regularly so that we can reinforce on a consistent basis um, the fact that no matter what age white people are, no matter what mental health status they're in, no matter um, whether they're elderly or retarded or whatever the heck was wrong with them, or if they're so-called so normal, that they're all white supremacists. And I think stories like that help to bring that home. Those are, are very teachable moments we can use for our children. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Also, um, the clip you played about the uh, International Criminal Court, I just, I, I mean, to me, the... Uh, African leaders who part who were uh, participants in that court from the different countries uh, on the continent essentially were just trying to do what white supremacists wanted them to do. And um, again, none of them understand the system of white supremacy simply because they were participating in their own destruction um, the same way that a lot of us in other parts of the world do the same thing, whether it's, whether it's becoming officers, people in the military, et cetera. And now, thankfully, they're starting to come to the understanding that anything that involves dealing with white people is going to be racist, white supremacist, and of the detriment to anyone that is uh, specifically black but non-white um, as well. Um, also, I read a recent article um, about CRISPR, and now they're talking about uh, designing, making designer babies. So <laughs> white people are going to be trying to manipulate their genes in order to um, possibly perfect their ability to survive what nature has been dishing at them as far as their negative birth rate. And then also I thought about um, the term colonialism when Thomas and New York brought it up. Um, that term actually comes from the actual name of Christopher Columbus. His name was Cristobal Colon. So anytime you use the term colonialism or any variant of that term, you're basically calling him by name because he's the father of colonialism and the global spread of racism and white supremacy. Um, thank you, and with that, I'll meet my line. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, appreciate that, Roz. Other folks we haven't heard from have commentary. Hello, can I be a... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, hi. This call I took some notes here on this week's um, articles here. Racism and white supremacy, I swear. Uh, I took a note on the neighborhood, and I had never heard that term. I thought I was hearing things at first, so I'm glad she kept repeating it. And then here we go. We got another term out that I never heard of it. A new term, gayberhood. Um, and even being a gay black male, you will still experience racism. I noted that because I hear people saying that it's a little bit easier for the for the black men to, you know, be gay and then white people really don't find them um strong enough or they're not, you know, I don't have to worry about them because they're gay, but those people are still experiencing racism, white supremacy, and the abuse with the young man with the lasso or the young person uh, with the lasso or the noose around the neck. The NAACP representative said this, and he said it twice, I'm so glad. 
he said if you well he said it once he said if you tolerate racism now you'll tolerate violence later and i always hear you gus saying that about these things seem like they're small right somebody called you a nigger at school or you found you know a noose on your work desk or somebody put something on your locker at school and so those things do lead to violence and take these things seriously when they when they happen and i'm glad he said that and moving on to the clinton crime bill and what um the um our uh our person that's he's incarcerated but he does a, a weekly broadcast broadcast he said you get what you vote for and then i noted you get what you vote for okay that's fine but who's voting if he's talking about the main election i don't know if people forget or they don't remember from school when they already told us about the electoral college so who's really voting here we need to sit down and be honest about that you know this is a big game it's a big show with that now, Zambia wants to break away from the ICC and whatever ever African country. I think that they should. Um, I think we should be behind them. If they have issues going on in their countries, um, you know, we want them to be strong enough to deal with their own issues because nobody's going around. The ICC or anybody else is able to go around and get racist white supremacists bought to trial and, and justice uh, being brought out from them, brought to trial. So that ICC, that's another, it's a game with that ICC. The Seattle report, um, I noticed that the lady said that the police are human, right? And she said that twice, like the police are human, right? So I, I went up and talked to them or whatever she was saying. And it kind of seemed like she had needed to convince, I don't know if she was trying to convince the listeners by her saying that, but she did say it twice, like maybe the police are human. I don't know. Um, and a lot of her speech, I was listening to that, and she could have switched a lot of those words off for racism, white supremacy, to be more clear. And uh, for the Black Panther, <clears throat> Bobby Seale, um, I, was, I was interested to hear that he was actually um, motivated to um, go into this by Dr. Martin Luther King. And um, so that was interesting. Um, see here. Uh, and then that, those were um, those were all I had. Um, just quickly, a person, I didn't know a person can carry a weapon without a permit or anything. If they feel like their life is in danger or their family's life is in danger, they, they can carry a weapon. And I think that goes with the Constitution, as everybody is supposed to be able to carry a weapon if they need to anyway. And so that's what I um, wanted to say today on the compensatory call-in. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm going to hush so that the male caller who spoke up also can get in. I just, if we have any listeners, if you have free fingers and you're at your computer or what have you, is that still a law in the state of California or elsewhere? If you feel that your life is in danger, that you can carry a firearm even without a permit? I don't live in California, but I would be curious to know if that is still legal uh, or if there are any other states where 
that law exists. If anybody has the time, interest to look, even archives, I'd be curious. You can drop me an email, untiljustice at gmail.com. Other folks we haven't heard from, the male caller who spoke up simultaneously with the female and yielded the floor. Did you want to go, sir? Yes, sir. Can, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay. Hey, man. How you everybody doing, man? Uh, when I'm calling the first thing, man, I want to uh, tip my head to uh, President Obama. You know, he, uh, I guess the white people let him commute, uh, you know, uh, make history with the most commutations or whatever you say it for uh, federal inmates. You know, so, uh, but they also wanted to make know that he also broke the record of refusing. You know, he turned down a lot of people too. So, but you know, all in all, this did good. And, uh, man, you know, I want to just say thank you for the show. And it kind of just seemed like, man, the, the clips you be finding, it's like everything you did, it did, you know, you played the, uh, the little part where Obama say, uh, what do you say? It's getting better. You know, this, this generation is getting better, but she really ain't getting better, you know. And uh, so what I really, I just, I want to ask you a question too, man, for you to address whenever you um, whenever you can, and you know anybody else, because all right, like uh, you know, I I think codification is good. You know, uh, we all we need that anyway. You know, even for when if if we ever do come about, well, uh, you know, we ain't dealing with white people no more. We still need that, right? But I'm trying to understand how what people think of as far as it ending racism. Cause see, I, I mean, I don't know if you say that the problem can be solved, and I feel like it can too. But I mean, it, it, it codification is. I don't think that's gonna change. Cause white people ain't changing. I think somebody did see it earlier. They said, man, you know, they, they don't want peace. They don't want peace, and I, uh, I see that too. And I'm kind of just trying to wrap my mind around the concept of codification, uh, putting the end to, you know, the things that we we being subject to. And uh, yeah, man. And once again, both thank you, thank you everybody. Uh, and I'm gonna mute my line. Appreciate. It. Appreciate the uh, question. Certainly other folks can feel free to respond. Uh, I'll give out the number again, 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, My response would just be, I think um, we've done some programs before about just what, what do we mean when we say codification? I think it's very important, uh, Mr. Fuller, and I think this goes right to why Mr. Fuller emphasizes that it's not his code, it's not a personal thing about Neely Fuller Jr. or any other individual, uh, it's just a counter-racist code following logic. Uh, my understanding of codif- codification is figuring out uh, the best way to do something, to get the absolute best result for yourself, and then figuring out all the details of how you achieve that best result and then doing it that way every time so that you always get the best result and then you make modifications as need be, right? Because situations change and that sort of thing. You refine as you go, you figure out, you know, you can maybe do it better if you add this step in or take this step out or whatever the case is. But it just 
simply getting the best possible result every time and figuring out all the details so that you know how to do that every single time. That's what counter-racist uh, counter codification uh, is supposed to be about. Uh, and specifically as it relates to dealing with racism, figuring out all the necessary information to totally neutralize racist man, racist woman, racist child, every time. Whatever the situation is, we're at school, no way. I'm not getting suspended, I'm not getting ISS, I'm not getting slammed, none of that. Uh, if we're talking court, no, I'm not in enough here in the first place. Uh, we're talking about you know enforcement officials, uh, I'm not going to be stopped in the first place. Like I've already figured all this stuff out, this is not going to happen. I don't have any of these problems because I figured out all, everything I need to know. We obviously don't have all that information. This problem can be solved, in my opinion, by just getting more non-white people to have accurate understanding. I think some of the people said they heard during the clips, victims speaking, even said that they heard on the cows this month. When we've had non-white people on, uh, sometimes even Gus T, uh, where they are not being accurate about what white supremacy racism is. Uh, a lot of times, us just having... Uh, not having all the accurate information, we can't be as codified as we would like to be. We are, we're consistently getting the best result, but we're not having problems that we can't solve. Uh, so just codification, getting the best result, having all the info you need to, to make all the necessary steps, get the best result, and then applying that to counter-racism, solving the problem. I think just getting more of us to have an accurate grasp of racism and then being honest about that, putting those two things together where we're not lying to ourselves and then making an increasing effort to not lie to other victims of racism as well, at minimum. I'm not going to lie to other victims about racism. I'm not going to lie to myself about racism. We're going to be honest about this, and we're going to think, and we're going to figure this out. There are, ton there are, there are billions of non-white people on this planet. I think we could, we could solve this problem quickly if we had enough folks who had a grasp of what the problem is, what we need to be focused on, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. I think right now it's just about getting more non-white people aware of the problem, whites, and then things we should, things we should not do in order to solve this problem quickly. I hope that makes logical sense. I will hush. Again, if other folks, if they would like to respond to that question, feel free. Anyone we haven't heard from? Anybody that we missed, any callers uh, who have a hand up that we have not heard from at all? Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. I have to, can you all hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Thank you. Uh, greetings, everybody. Um, I have to agree 100%. That is probably my biggest critique about any of the, not that it's really a critique, but the one thing that I have to say whenever I'm listening to any of the non-white people speak, um, even just in my own personal circles, is that we really don't, not necessarily even have a grasp of racism, but don't even have a definition for it. And I find that to be really, really, really troublesome. Um, I am in the D.C. area, and I went to the museum and um, that was one of the things that I noticed, too. There's this, and this is a humongous museum. This museum is very large. Um, not, well, anyway, it's very large. And in this entire museum, at least in the bottom part, it's so large I wasn't able to see the top and the bottom. The bottom is, like, history, and then the top is more, like, sports, music, and entertainment. 
um, still history, but from that perspective. And in the bottom part, you know, we have, as you heard in the clip, um, slavery and all of that stuff. Nowhere in there is there a definition for racism. And I thought that that was really fascinating. All this hundred square miles of whatever we have here, not a definition of racism. Um, I do not know who said it earlier in the call, but I had the very same eerie feeling that just like they did to the Native Americans, they're kind of going to try to do the same thing with us. Um, because I went to that museum as well, and it was very interesting to look at that museum. They kind of are similar in a little bit, um, that eventually you'll have, you know, black people, African-Americans kind of like carved in wood or etched or, you know, even African people that like you can't find anymore. You know, one day we'll be in a museum and they'll be the original aboriginals um, and the Tasmanians that no longer exist, you know, some kind of like wax figure or something and every, all the Europeans and whites will gather to look at ooh and gawk at what used to be, you know, it was really weird. Um, that means I just, I, I wrote, a, I recorded a lot of notes throughout my entire experience of that museum, but I hadn't had a chance to really put them together in any kind of like blog or recording or anything. But just a few things is that that museum's really more for whites than it is for blacks. White, like, I don't know if, you know, I guess it depends on what day. I drive past it every day to go to work. Some days you see nothing but whites standing in line to go to this museum. Some days you see some black people there too, because there's a line to get in early in the morning. And, um, but I don't see how there could be a museum about us that white people could go into and be cool. Like, I know I'm not being really uh, professional in this speak right now, but white people were not troubled at all by anything in the museum. They were just chilling, like, oh, this is fascinating. Look at this. This is really nice. And uh, I don't think, like, it, just by that virtue alone, that aspect, it's not an effective museum to speak to what we dealt with. He over-exaggerated that cow whip or, or cowhide, like, whip or whatever, it's not even the whole thing. There's only one, and Oprah bought it from someone, and that's how it's there. It's like really, there's so much that is probably still sitting in people's homes that they're passing on as heirlooms. That was one of my biggest things. Where's Nat Turner's skin? You know, like these are the kind of things, not to say that I want that in the museum, but what's going on? The museum had, it was really spacious, but with very little information. There was this whole big room dedicated to the uh, African slave ship, or excuse me, the transatlantic slave ship. I don't know if anyone's in the area, if y'all are on the call, and you're familiar with the great National Blacks on Wax Museum over in Baltimore. Um, they, too, have a transatlantic slave ship. But when you go on that, and that one is extremely underfunded, but a way better museum, which I already knew it was going to be. And they have the entire thing, like, you can see what it was like. You go to this, quote, unquote, Smithsonian. I walked in there. I walked out. I asked the guard. I said, is this it? He said, yeah, it's a piece. They literally have this whole thing. Like, you wait in line to go in, and it's just a piece of a transatlantic slave, and not even anything. It's, like, literally like a piece of metal. And I was like, get out of here. Um, as far as I'm concerned, a lot of it could have even been fabricated, not even real or genuine. Um, and then they completely, it's true, it does just start with, like, the transatlantic slave trade, and I think that that's, like, terrible. You should have, it's, it's just terrible. I don't, yeah. Anyway, um, and then another thing I'll say about that, like, you can take the metro to get there. You can take one that's called Smithsonian. I'll post a picture on 
the context of white supremacy's Facebook page. But as soon as you get off of the metro to get up to the checkout, there's this humongous advertisement of this black boy, and he and it's advertising the Holocaust Museum. And it's, I'll post it. I I'll just post it. If you're all on Facebook, you can check it out. And I took a picture of it because I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Um, and then, um, yeah, so, and the one thing, I'll, and I'll make it quick because I don't I have other things to talk about, but uh, with the Black Panthers, I mean, I don't know if um, Mr. Steele was telling the truth or not, maybe throughout his lifetime and how he's seen how things have transpired and how they've moved. Maybe he, maybe he was always really influenced by um, Dr. King, but maybe he wasn't. And maybe he might be kind of like switching his position now in an effort to rewrite his name or rewrite history. I think even the interviewer might've mentioned something similar, like, yeah, you play them both well or something like that. I'm not to say that, you know, Dr. King or Malcolm X, either one is better than the other, anything like that. Um, but it did seem a little bit interesting to me just to say, and I wouldn't be surprised that, you know, to see how it is now and to, and then to maybe try to change your position to say that you weren't kind of how you were. He was really, really young at the time. Um, and then just if I have like two seconds, um, well, anyway, I'll come back to that one. Anyway, I won't even switch the topic just to stay on what you mentioned, but we'll talk about it later. Thank y'all, and I'll mute myself. Right on. <laughs> Other people who uh, that we have not heard from, if you have commentary, feel free. Greetings, everyone. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, I, I thought the, uh, hello, <laughs> uh, who goes Gus? Uh, continue, uh, firefighter. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, yes, I, I thought the, uh, the caller who, uh, asked the question, uh, was, it was a, uh, it's, it's a very, very important question. Uh, to me, is essential on what the context of racist white supremacy program is about. <laughs> very, very fundamental. And uh, I would, I would, I would say my answer would be uh, based on what I think is a fact that we're living under a global system of racism white supremacy which is the major problem that exists amongst peoples within a known universe, pres pres prescribably uh, people that they classify as not being white. Uh, these people who identify themselves as white practice, they've developed and practice a racist codified system. It is, by this time, it, it is razor sharp in thought, speech, and action. Therefore, it is essential to anyone who is a victim of this system, prescribably non-white people, that they develop and institute 
and practice, work on it, you know, uh, to where it becomes razor sharp as a countering codified system. I think that is the answer to solving the problem of racism, white supremacy. And I can't think of any, any other, any other uh, means. Now, certainly over all of this time that, uh, which is at least centuries, that the global system of racist white supremacy exists, non-white people have attempted a lot of things into solving the problem. Yet, this problem is, the problem is still here. Uh, and I think specifically because, because the answer is right there in front of us. Global system of racist white supremacy, codified system. White people are practicing individually a code. Therefore, what is logical is to for the victims of this system, non-white people, to practice a code. Uh, there's codes everywhere in all nine areas of activity. You know, on, on uh, most uh, uh, workplace racism, uh, uh, which we go through every week. There's codes right there on our in our on our jobs that we practice on a daily basis is just a means of of doing things in the most proficient manner as possible. Well, the suggestion is, why don't we apply that to counter this system that affects us in the most horrendous, treacherous ways? And uh, I think from there, the problem would be solved. And as I heard you say, Gus, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put a pass on how soon it can be done. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily have to take every last person that is considered to be not white in a known universe to actually uh, uh, engage into this exercise, but a significant number. And don't ask me what that is, because I, I do not know on what what would be that significant number. But if a significant number of us engage into this process the problem could be solved. Thank you. Hmm. Right on. Uh, all the people that we have not heard from, you should speak now. All the people that we have not heard from. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi, Princess. Hi, guys. Um, I was, I'll just make it quick because, um, I don't want to embarrass myself because I just, um, I had surgery last week, so I'm under a lot of, uh, cuckoo medication, but I was up enough to just, uh, call in to let everybody know, uh, that I am okay. And, um, uh, right before surgery, it was something that was on my mind as far as, you know, how black people are treated in the healthcare industry. So I took a number of precautions. Um, this was actually being planned within the past couple of months before the final 30 days of my surgery. 
this is one of two uh, surgeries uh, that I uh, had to have. Um, and um, uh, mainly just making sure that you have, um, as a black person, I think it's important that you have someone, uh, a relative mainly. Luckily, I, my mom was able to come here. So she's been here all this week, um, kind of like my advocate um, while I was uh, in the hospital because I wasn't able uh, to speak for myself um, when it came time to surgery. So she was able to speak to the doctors and um, she has a nursing background, so she would understand and know uh, a lot of the things that was going on uh, in general. Um, but um, just uh, making sure that if you do, for any reason, um, find yourself having to go to the hospital uh, to get any type of medical procedure or stuff uh, done, that you have somebody that can speak on your behalf, that um, you trust. Um, I actually um, had to do... Um, like a will, I, I actually thought about doing that and wound up doing it before um, all this had to come about. And just other things that I, you know, beneficiary in case there was something wrong or, you know, I know you try not to think negative, but, you know, just things like that. You want to make sure that you have ironed out um, before you uh, go into a type of procedure like this stuff. So, but the good thing was everything um, was okay, so it's just um, next couple of months just trying to take it easy and not trying to do too much and hobble around and stuff like that. And then, um, you know, uh, just making sure that you cover all your bases as far as processing your disability, of course, with your work and stuff like that. Make sure that you make copies of things, keep records. Um, and, you know, documentation as far as the people who you're communicating with, as far as with HR, your your managers or boss or whoever. And um, that's, uh, that's really it. Once I finish through this and they're satisfied with my progress, then, you know, I'll report back to work, but then I'm going to be probably right back out because I'm going to be getting the next, procedure done and hopefully that is successful but other than that um, I haven't been able to call in for workplace racism because I've just been past couple months just trying to deal with this and a whole bunch of stuff that's been going on but hopefully now that I'm going to be at home I'll be able to play uh, catch up and share some stories with that but um, really haven't been able to pay attention to too much of the news. I've heard some things, but I've just been kind of in and out because of the medication and uh, just trying to rest and stuff like that. Other than that, I will leave my line. Thank you, Jeff, and everybody, and the callers. Oh. I wish you the best with your. Uh surgery. Make sure you're uh, taking good care of yourself. I'm so glad we got it repeated, uh, the significance of uh, Vernelia Randall's 
suggestion to make sure that you have someone, if you have to go to the hospital, uh, let's try to do everything we can to avoid getting there to begin with, but if you have to go to have somebody who uh, is healthy accompany you so that they can ask questions and uh, conduct some surveillance on your behalf. Uh, that is extremely important uh, under the system of white supremacy, but definitely I hope uh, hope you are taking uh, tremendous care of yourself and uh, definitely our thoughts and prayers will be with you for your upcoming uh, surgery as well. Thank you. For sure. Uh, let's see. Puff, did you have a uh, commentary you were going to share? Hello, can I be heard? Go ahead, Puff. Yes, ma'am. Yes, all I wanted to say is uh, I hope Princess do well, and that's it. Ashe, I second that. Uh, is there another caller that was going to share that we haven't heard from? Thanks, Puff. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, peace to the callers, to the host, and to the platform. Uh, I just wanted to speak about racism, white supremacy being a sophisticated form of terrorism and terrorism uh, that, you know, that we talk about bringing to justice. And I, I think that we can do it. And I think one of the most vital elements in doing it is codifying the black people's behavior in the area of religion so that they can work together to fight against the common enemy, which would be uh, racism, white supremacy, sophisticated terrorism. And, you know, I would say like Luciferian, uh, concepts and activity, things like that. So, you know, I think that, you know, we spend a lot of time maybe arguing this particular information, which is either here to help us or not help us logically. The existence of um, alleged God, or an alleged devil, alleged day of judgment, things like that, plus our, you know, position with trying to eliminate racism and white supremacy and replace that with a system of justice and seeing how this system is closely related it, possibly to a Luciferian system, more a system of vice and um we definitely can bring it to justice, but we definitely would have to, I think, codify our behavior, especially in this particular area, since, you know, this may be very vital to us attacking this type of system. We need some ammo on the intellectual realm. And uh, about the stories we heard, you know, it should be automatic when a hate crime happens to a non-white person, especially black. But it's always hear no evil. Sin, uh, I mean, I hear no evil, see no evil. But they don't recognize it and call it for what it is as racism, white supremacy. And I think that really the only thing that the racist white supremacists are surviving off of right now is the lack of mention 
of racism and white supremacy as is. That these are to me are the three most beautiful words in the English language right now because it, it gives us the ability to speak clearly about what we couldn't speak clearly about, you know, in the past or our ancestors or the people who came before us couldn't clearly say racism and white supremacy and keep going and and then be able to relate all things to the nine areas of people activity. So uh, I just think that we on the right track and appreciate the show and all of the callers and all of the stories every week is better than watching CBS and NBC. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Um, definition of racism at the museum in Washington, D.C. That would be, uh, I was just thinking about that. I was thinking, I, I so wish that uh, we could hear Dr. Welsing's commentary on the museum. And then I also added that Dr. Welsing should be included at the museum. Uh, and our listener who attended, she said, uh, then we would have a definition of racism. I mean, that's so, so, so uh, important. Um, that's something I think anybody, if you go to the museum and they have a comment section or you can submit critiques or better yet, if you can speak to somebody who is in charge, uh, you can, you know, nab the white person or if they have a non-white person who is in charge uh, and say, hey, you know, a lot of what this is dealing with seems to be racism. Racism seems to be an element and things black people have been subjected to as a result of racism and ways that black people have fought back against racism, why is there no definition of the term racism? And just submit it as a question and see if that's something we might end up with Tim Wise writing the definition, but at least it would be a definition. At least we have a starting point and then we could just go from there about, you know, which definition it is. But very, very important. Um, Caller, uh, anybody that we missed, anybody who doubted that we have not heard from at all. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings, everybody. Um, just three quick things. Um, the C- um, the Seattle uh, report about more police uh, being deployed. Um, Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago here, uh, has uh, deployed or ordered 500 more policemen uh, for Chicago to curb the violence here. And obviously, you know, I think we talked about this before, about it seems like whenever there's an area of people of color, uh, non-white people, uh, there seem to be more police. Um, I remember listening to a speech by Malcolm X saying, you know, why is it that the area with the most police has the most crime? So, uh, you know, we have to keep that in mind. Uh, also, to uh, the report by Mumia, uh, when he talked about uh, gang members, uh, um, I mean, uh, when he talked about uh, being associated with a gang, you know, talking about being a federal offense, I, I noticed something in the news reports, uh, uh, here particularly in the local news, but I just want to put this out there. Has anybody out there who live in uh, – who live in uh, predominantly uh, non-white areas, <clears throat> when they talk about the violence in the area, do you hear the term documented gang member? Because I'm like, not too sure what a documented gang member is. Uh, so that actually came up. 
and the and the uh the African American Smithsonian uh museum in DC uh you know at first I was I was uh you know I was thinking about going out there to to check it out but then when I started hearing uh the reports about what's in the museum I, my my you know excitement kind of waned after that I remember Dr. Boyce Watkins uh talked about his visit there and he said you know, he got to see Flavor Flav's clock, but he saw nothing of Marcus Garvey. Like he's like he 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 damn near toured the whole museum, and he said he saw nothing of Marcus Garvey. Um, you know, I'm not sure how accurate that is, but that was his report. Uh, but I wanted to ask, uh, maybe the maybe the call in DC uh, could could uh, 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 touch on it because you know I. Because typically, I, you know, I don't want to see Flavor Flavor Flav's clock. I don't want to see the whips that they use. Uh, you know, I don't want to see shackles that they put on uh, on uh, on on, on uh, babies. But you know, the one thing that I was thinking: Do they have at least you know the profiles of black inventors there? You know, Charles Drew or or you know Granville um, uh, Granville Woods or you know some of uh, uh, car, uh, uh, George Washington Carver's work or something like that. I mean, at least something, because it just seems like that museum is just, you know, uh, a history of slavery and, and, and sports and entertainment, you know? So, and I'm just wondering, like, you know, they at least have, you know, black inventors in there. So um, that's about it for me. I'll, uh, I'll mute my line. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, Marcus Garvey is there, but it's a very, very, very small little, like, piece of information on him. His hat, however, is there. Um, and I only found him because I was really frustrated with the museum. And I was like, you trying to tell me they ain't got Marcus Garvey up in here? And someone heard me, a brother heard me. He was like, oh, he's over around the corner, sis. So I went and I found Marcus Garvey in a very obscure spot. Um, George Washington Carver is there. Um, they actually have a statue of him. So what I can do is, I mean, I took very extensive notes on my voice recorder um, and a lot of pictures. Um, I will gather those notes and I will put those pictures because I realize a lot of people are not in the area. And even if they are in the area, it was very, very difficult to get tickets. Like right now, you can't even get tickets until after March of next year. Um, so I will, and I will tell you, I only took pictures of thought, things that I thought was relevant or things that I needed to look up again, um, because I thought that they were lying. But I will write, because there's a lot of lying in the museum. There's a lot of whitewashing. Um, they do, one thing, I'll say this, that I really didn't like about the museum, is they try to say that whites came up with the idea of whiteness somewhere in the Chesapeake area after Jamestown. And I thought that that was ludicrous. Um, and that's like one of those things like, oh, we enslaved the black people, the African, and then we decided, oh, why not we just make the, all the black people slaves, and then we'll, we'll just be the white people that aren't enslaved. And that just really doesn't make any sense to me. As far as I'm concerned, the idea of the concept of whiteness really probably happened around the time that the last Moor was run out of the Iberian Peninsula of Spain. Um, 
I mean, I'm not a historian, all like that. I don't know for sure, but I feel like that's when the whites kind of began to collude and be like, we're white. They might not have accepted all white people, but they knew we're white and the rest of the world is brown. This isn't going to work. Um, but anyway, so the museum does do a lot of like rewriting, whitewashing. I will extrapolate my notes, gather all my pictures, and I will post them to the context of racism, white supremacy, and some type of like post or something so everyone can go and see some of the images. I did take a picture of Marcus Garvey's hat and some of the other statues, but yes, there is some uh, information on some adventures. It's not all doom and gloom because it's actually not supposed to be doom and gloom. Anytime that they're talking about something that should be doom and gloom, they follow it up with some kind of finalizing sentence of, um, but look at the enduring in spirit, the enduring spirit of the American Negro. Um, the museum is really supposed to be about how strong black people are for enduring all that white people have done to them. Um, so yes, I will definitely post that because I know folks are probably really interested. I would definitely go if I was there um, just to take notes. You could probably even just go and observe who's at the museum. You could do counter-racist experiments. That would be an incredible environment to conduct counter-racist experiments. Like You could just go and observe the demographics of the people that are there. You could go ask them questions. You could go ask them if they have a definition of racism. Uh, you could ask all white people one day, ask all black people one day. Um, I mean, it just seems like uh, I would go. I would go, and I, I'm really, really sad uh, that Dr. Welsing is not with us to give. I'm real sure she would uh, would have gone to the museum and reported, uh, yay, nay, what you thought about it, whatever. I am sure she would have been in an attendance, and uh, I'm real sad we don't have her commentary. Anybody else that we missed? Anybody we haven't heard from at all? Uh, yes, I have a question. Yes, sir. Uh, I have a question for the uh, sister that went to the uh, museum. Uh, were there any white people practicing racism by uh, by crying, trying to act sympathetic towards blacks, the black plight? Not the time that I went. Um, not the little the time that I went. But the museum has been open for a while, and I have heard of, you know, white people being moved. Actually, pause. I'm lying. Yes, there was a white girl, but she was with her boyfriend. And she I couldn't tell if she was, like, white or maybe Latina or something like that. Like, I really couldn't tell. But, um, yeah, she had a couple of tears. <laughs> and I was real cynical the whole time. But there wasn't, like, some, you know, white woman really calling a whole bunch of attention. But I remember looking at her. Um, but, yeah. That was there. That was there. And then you have, um, you know, then there was white people who were just, like, real indignant with it, too. Like, that this is their museum, and how dare you walk with your head up high, and they're not moving out your way. Because it's very jam-packed because so many people are trying to get in, and it's a very big museum. So as you're moving, you know how they like to obstruct your walkway by just being in the way. They're not even doing something. They just look lost and confused, but they're just in the way and they just don't move. Um, there was like a lot of that. There's a lot of um, just just taking up space. I don't know how else to describe it, but just taking up space 
and not allowing you to just have your experience and move along. And then they also, it was like, I went on a Friday and I don't know why they let a whole bunch of kids in there, like white kids, it wasn't black kids. I mean, it was packed with a bunch of white kids and they must've had some kind of like treasure hunt. So you actually have these white kids running, actually running through the museum, writing down things on pieces of paper. So I thought that was just really disrespectful. Um, have them during the week when so many of us are at work or even though Friday is a work week or work day, you know what I'm saying? But um, mm -hmm. yep, that's how it was. Psychological terrorism. Uh, that's all I wanted to meet my line. Hello, can I, say, can I ask you something, ma'am, about the museum? Can we? I want to pause Absolutely. one second. Um, I will definitely get your question in uh, for our museum visitor. We just had two other people who haven't shared at all. I want to make sure we get them in and then we'll pick up your question, ma'am. Uh, the two other folks who just joined us more recently, uh, did you all have uh, commentary? Yes, good evening. Yes, ma'am, you can go ahead. Um. Gus, I just um, wanted to know if I could ask a quick, a quick question about a, um, a past guest. I wanted to find this particular show, but if that's not appropriate right now, I can wait. Let's hear it. Um, you know the guest, you, you refer to this a lot um, in, a, in, a, in a couple of shows, and I can't find the one where you actually said her name, but someone said you can't awaken people that are pretending to be asleep, and so I just wanted to know who that guest was so I could listen to that show. Uh, she used the <laughs> she used the handle uh, change seeker change seeker uh, this was a white woman uh, she was on the programs like May 2010 like I can uh, I can uh, post the link on my Facebook page if you do Facebook um, if that won't work I can I don't know I could tweet it, or you could email me, and I could send it to you. But it was May 2010. Change seeker. She is the uh, racial uh, racist suspect uh, who made that statement. Okay. Um, you know, I don't think you have to go through that trouble with the the Facebook. I mean, you can. I do do Facebook, but I can find it just you know based off what you said. That's just that that was great what you said. I can find it that way. So thank you, and greetings to everybody. I didn't say hi to everybody. I hope everybody's doing well. And uh, so thanks, Gus. I'm going to look that up. Right on. Let me know if you have trouble. Uh, yes, sir. The astute one. Yes, good evening to everyone again. Um, I just wanted to pose something uh, concerning the question that uh, is frequently asked to uh, guests on the um, program, saying, uh, who's more confused about racism. Um, I do think that is a very, very important question to, to ask. Um, I think in answering that question, the white guests are being um, codified themselves. They're being racist themselves. So in order to not reveal, um, I guess the, the dedication that white people have to practicing racism, they're gonna automatically, or m most of them are gonna say, okay, of course, uh, white people are confused because, again, that, that shows that we're not dedicated just by accident or by chance that we're practicing racism. And then um, they'll explain that, you know, of course, you know, black people know that racism is being practiced on them. 
um, which um, I believe most um, black people are aware of that, but um, they don't know how the entire system works. Yes, uh, most black people know that they are victims to a degree, but I don't, I don't, I don't think uh, most black people do know that, you know, to what degree or the depth. I don't think probably the people on this line on the, um, that are listening to this program, we don't know 100% the depth to which racism is being practiced on. We, we probably know more than a lot of black, the majority of black people now that are more confused, but we still know. I know I'll speak for myself. I know I don't know the depth to which racism has been practiced on um, black people. And I think when black people answer that question, they're just showing their, their confusion by saying like, okay, um, yeah, black people are more, um, or well, let's say uh, white people are more confused. Black people are more aware just because we're victims. And yes, I know that I'm a victim, but you don't know how the whole system works. But I, I wanted to know if there's a way that that, I don't know, that question can be honed in a little bit more. And again, this is not to any fault of uh, the, especially the female that usually asks, asks that question. It's not to any fault of hers or anybody's, but it's like, okay, just like Gus, I know you always, you, you equate or you kind of look at racism as a crime. Like you ask a question, like, for instance, who knows more about how, uh, I guess, organized crime works? Is it, you know, members of the mafia or is it victims of the mafia? Who knows how it works, you know? And it's obvious that the members of organized crime, they know how, that, how the system works. They know how to commit it. It's not just from the victim standpoint or, or anything. And I don't even know if this makes sense at all. I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but I, I just, and if I had the opportunity next time that's, that's asked, especially to a white person, well, probably either white or black, I probably, I want to add a little bit to that question to see, okay, it's obvious that the victim, well, most victims do, victims are going to, most victims are probably going to know that they're a victim, but that doesn't mean they know how the entire system works. Anyway, um, that's all I had. Um, thanks for letting me share. Hmm. That is interesting. Um, just, I'm trying to make sure I'm grasping. When you say refining the question, do you mean uh, either starting with that question and then asking a follow-up question in terms of if we're going to approach uh, racism as a crime and saying, well, who knows more? Uh, about the organized crime of racism uh, and how that business is conducted, the victims of the crime or the criminals? Uh, is that the way you're saying, or just start with that to begin with, just kind of drop the whole who's more confused about racism to begin with and get right to the who's, who knows more about the organized crime of racism? Um, I think it could be asked uh, either way, I guess, depending on the guest, but that is what I'm getting at, Gus. Um, um, I would say, especially for the white people, you can ask them just, hey, who's more confused about racism, white people or non-white people? And let them do their refining, their, uh, you know, just not being 100% honest about the system, and then come back with them and say, okay, if I were to put it this way about, you know, 
organized crime and the, and the victims of organized crime who would be more confused just to see the you know the uh, contrast and how they how they answer the question so but that is the point that i'm getting at got it got it i know um i don't know if it's uh in the archives but i know i have with whites before uh used prisons to illustrate that saying that the system of white supremacy if we think about it as a prison which is for sure a uh, real life manifestation of that system who knows more about how this prison is run uh, and when I say uh, knows about the prison um, knows the laundry schedule knows the food delivery schedule uh, knows the inmate release schedule knows the schematics of where the sewage is disposed where the water goes out, like who knows all of that information? Who has, who is more knowledgeable, more knowledgeable about all of that? The inmates or the guards, the warden? And I've even seen where whites will stick with their code pretty hard on that and say, well, that, that Mumia mm. is one intelligent guy. I mean, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't say that he's ignorant. That, like, I mean, mm. it's the same type of thing that you hear uh, when they normally respond on the program. But at least, mm. at least I, I would say, uh, with a lot of victims, they begin to think about it more logically when you give them the follow-up, like prison or what you're saying, like organized crime, whatever. They start to think about it more logically where it's not the immediate, oh, yeah, white people are way ignorant about racism. They will think about it a little more if you give them that. Absolutely. And and, and one last thing quickly. Um, I just wanted to point out again, and again, most of us on this line um, know about this, and um, I just would like us to start pointing it out to other people. The stuff that is portrayed on um, on media, especially mass media, that's stuff that's plastered on, well, not plastered, but it's um, talked about on the news, news a lot and frequently, and it's being um, just, just shown all the time, 24-7, CNN, headline news, Fox News, and stuff like that. It's It's approved by white people so it has it can't be good for us on some level it just can't and i i've heard callers say this before that um if white people like it it's probably not good for us i've heard people say that on on this line and it's and if stuff that they don't approve of again i don't believe this was uh Roz that said that that um yeah if white people don't approve of it we're probably going in the right direction so uh, i just want people to to keep that in mind and uh, again thanks for letting me share and have, everyone have a good evening thanks for sure minister malcolm said that as well anything that uh makes white people happy he's immediately suspicious and that is one of my favorite lines of his i try to say it as often as i can and keep that in the forefront of my counter racist thinking uh the female caller that was going to ask her question uh to our uh, museum visitor. Did you want to get your question in? Thanks for your patience, ma'am. Yes, thank you so much. I just wanted to ask her, how much are they charging people to get into the African American Museum? If there is a charge. There is no charge. Um, They have timed passes that you can request online but the museum actually does not charge for tickets. It's free. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. 
I would definitely hand that out as a uh, exercise uh, if you are in the D.C. area or will be hanging out in the D.C. area uh, over the next five, six months. Uh, plan a counter-racist experiment that you could do at the museum. Uh, see if you can, you know, if you can kind of do it in advance where you can get uh, tickets, uh, where you can go and think of some questions uh, that you can either ask the curators at the museum, why is the definition of racism not included? Or whatever other questions uh, you would like to ask. Uh, and then questions that you can ask patrons, uh, racists, victims. Uh, and, you know, see what you get. Uh, you can have a recorder. You can make a video out of it, a blog, uh, a report. That's something right there that I think you could do that would probably be constructive. And then you can also add your commentary about what you thought about the museum. You can just throw that in as, you know, it's a double. You'll have your experiment, what you did, and ask, and then your observations on what you saw at the museum and, and what you thought about it in context, of course. Other folks uh, have commentary. I think we got everybody. Yes, everybody who had a hand up. Did we get everybody? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, real quick, um, the young lady that went to the museum, the last thing she mentioned was in reference to, I believe it was a black, a young black male and an advertisement for the Holocaust Museum. And then, Gus, you had mentioned about Dr. Welsing, uh, probably would have some constructive material on visiting the museum. If you go to the website that's for the Holocaust Museum, the first thing that pops up is anti-Semitism and ongoing threat. And then it has an encyclopedia and an introduction to the Holocaust. And I find that information very interesting because when you go to the Smithsonian Museum, and obviously it might be a little newer, um, but I don't believe that they would have an introduction saying, white supremacy and ongoing threat, and that just shows you the incorrectness of it. And I just found that everything she was saying was really, really constructive. I tried to go out there, but I just don't have the time. But, you know, those museums are, are pretty close and dynamic to each other. Um, uh, both groups um, have, have experienced terrorism, but one is definitely being described differently than the other one. And obviously for the African-American Museum, it's because white people have a lot to do with it. So I just made that observation while she was talking. That's all. I just, my brain computer resonated because I was thinking exactly what the caller was thinking. Like, just imagine if you went to the, the African-American Museum and at the front, at the entrance, it had like a massive photograph or image of a lynching or lots of different lynchings, like a, a collage of different lynchings and uh, Darren Wilson's uh, smiling face and Daniel Pantaleo and uh, Officer Incinia uh, throwing Sandra Bland down on the ground. And you could just go through and pick a bunch of those. Uh, and it said uh, white people an ongoing threat. Now you can say white supremacy or whatever. But I mean, just making it that explicit, like, wow. <laughs> like, and then you go through the museum and just do a just huge, huge difference in how we would think about this problem. Can I be heard? Uh, Thomas in New York, you want to go first? Yeah, I agree um, with what you just said. And, um, you know, once again, this museum, 
I mean, the lady just said it's free. I mean, white people giving us something for free, you know, you already know it's going to be the three T's on display. It's going to be a bunch of white tackiness, white trashiness, and there's a bunch of white terrorism going to be displayed all over that because that's all they're going to give us. And um, they're going to probably say, uh, why, if you ask why, why is it there more Marcus Garvey in this museum, white people are going to tell you he's not an African-American. Um, so that's probably, I could already expect that answer from them. Um, um, as far as the, the counter-racist um, question, and, um, you know, I think that, you know, the counter-racist logic is the best way to go about it. Um, you know, when white people go to war, they use counter-tactics to subdue their enemy, um, and we need to start doing the same thing. And uh, one of the major ways of, countering the system, and this is how I, I put it together, is we need to stop participating in it. Um, you know, first, white people, white can't survive without the system they built. You know, they'll have a bunch of Obamas and Halle Berry's and Mariah Carey's walking around in, like, two generations. So they need the system to survive. And, um, you know, this system to them is about survival. So, you know, they just put it in that perspective. That's how serious it is. Um, but it doesn't mean we have to participate in it. And to me, the nine areas that nearly Fuller laid out are the nine areas that we need to, you know, codify our behavior in to the point where we're no longer participating in it until so we're acting within those systems like um, Freeman did, you know, amongst all the whites, and they didn't even recognize him. You know, he's not doing nothing wrong. He's not doing nothing uh stand out, not, you know, you have to, until we could have enough black self-respect to build our own system, you know, our own economic entertainment and educational and labor and law systems, you know, going all down to nine, equal, nine areas. But um, until we get there, which will take a whole bunch of codification from a lot of people right now individually, we need to try to codify how we participate in those um, in those areas when we have to. And um, I would say also, when you go within the nine areas, um, right now the three three of those nine areas we can stop participating in tomorrow is one sex with white people, um, two religion. You know, stop praying to the white god, looking for a white savior. It's not going to come help you. And um, three, politics. Um, we, we participate in their political system all the time. We don't need to do that. Um, and those three areas um, are the three areas that um, we can't stop tomorrow participating in. Other ones, you know, we got to work for them. We got to spend the money with their slave masters on it. We got to do all those things until we can figure out our own. But those three areas right now, we can stop tomorrow. I mean, my mom. The male caller that spoke up, and I just wanted to add, unless I have really, like, drastically miscalculated the power of Lee Daniels and Tyler Perry, uh, entertainment certainly would be an area that we could stop, like, right now, because uh, I don't think anybody is required Absolutely. to watch Scandal or Empire 
uh, or the new Tarzan or whatever the latest flick is, you are not required to pay for that cable subscription or Netflix or Luke Cage. Uh, that's one that we could, and you don't have to get on stage or hold the camera any aspect in front of the camera, behind the camera. Uh, so I think that's one we could also write off right now. The male caller that was going to speak up as well. Okay, yeah. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, I just wanted to say that I'm not shocked, but I definitely want to know more about this museum since they say it starts at the year 1400. Because I would think that, you know, I know they're going to lie, but I just would think that they would start it after that since they got to tell so much of a lie before... 1492 and so I'm I want to I want to definitely know like what what is they saying about the black people from 1400 allegedly to like about 1500 because allegedly in this time period this is where you know the crusade was happening you know against uh people who didn't agree with the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope and uh, the white people say they was going through something in England, and then, you know, they had wars with Islam, too. So in this time period, I'm wondering about all of the black people and where the, whether they were all slaves or not and how they depicted that, although I know they lied. So that's interesting that it started in 1400. That's what I wanted to ask. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, yes, me... greetings. Um, I wanted to answer the uh, the council racist question about codification. Um, I think it's a very important question. Um, and I, I study a lot about wildlife, and I'll just take an example from wildlife because I think it's the best thing. I'm actually going to end up writing an essay about this. But um, I don't know how many people know about uh, Japanese hornets, but they're the largest <laughs> hornet on the planet, they're about maybe two and a half to three inches long, and their stings are highly deadly. They create like crater-like holes in your skin if they sting you. And they're known to basically raid uh, beehives and massacre all of the bees. There's only 30, about 30 hornets in the hive, and they can massacre thousands of bees in like less than a half an hour. And they take the, the uh, grubs, which are the baby bees, to feed to their, to their larvae. And that's basically why they do what they do. And, and the, the Asian bees have a counter uh, hornet code. And that code is how the hornets work is they send out a scout. The scout goes to finds a beehive and it lets loose uh, some pheromones and also does the same dance that the bees do to give the bees the impression it's one of them. It makes its way into the center of the hive. It leaves a scent trail and then it goes back to tell the other hornets where the hive is, and then they come and they eradicate all of the adult bees and steal the baby bees to take to their grubs to feed them. And what the bees do, the Asian bees, is they allow that one hornet into the middle of the hive. They swarm on top of it, but they don't sting it. What they do is they uh, vibrate their bodies to the point that they raise the temperature up to 118 degrees. The hornet can only survive to 117 degrees, so they basically cook it in its own skin, and the bees can only survive one degree above the tolerance of the hornet. 
So that scout never makes its way back to tell the other ones where the hive is so they can't destroy them. And what they found is because bees are dying so badly, uh, Asians have been importing European bees who don't have a code. And they've been eradicating every hive that they've ever set up that has European bees. So they're trying to figure ways of how to get the European bees to get the same code that the Asian bees have. And that's how I would describe white supremacy. If we have a code in which we, like, like Thomas and uh, Gus was just saying, if we become non-participants in as many areas of activity as possible, things will start to shift in a way that we are not, I don't even think we're prepared for. And then um, ultimately, when, we, when there's a critical mass, not everyone, like the firefighter in Florida said, has to, um, has to come to the same understanding of uh, racism and white supremacy. But there's, if there's a critical mass that come to that understanding and a critical mass that come to a similar solution as to what the problem will be, to, 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 to what the problem would be um, on, a, on a massive scale, and then at some point, after we've changed enough behaviors in these other, on these uh, nine to ten areas of people activity, we can start to do something to really shift this very quickly and overnight if we wanted to. So thank you, um, and I'll meet my line. Oh, forget everyone. Make sure we uh, watch the metaphors. Um, we have about ten minutes left in the broadcast. Uh, folks have commentary. I just wanted to answer the gentleman's question from earlier, and everybody really hit on it. I think we can go further further than we ever thought we were able to go by incorporating black self-respect because the black self-respect won't, it won't allow, you won't want to do a lot of these, you know, things that we are doing just by having black self-respect, and I think that, I think that that would help a lot. Um, those stops too, um, they seem like they're easy, but they're, they can be difficult to incorporate. Um, and that's, that was my answer. I think we could, we could pretty much have this problem, this longest problem knocked out with black self-respect. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Uh, little less than 10 minutes anything oh there was one thing i was going to say about the segment and i even thought it might be interesting to get the black female uh attorney on who was talking about doing away with police i said this two years ago what needs to be done away with is the system of white supremacy you could still have a system of white supremacy and they could say fine we'll do away with the police no problem you say the police are racist fine let's do away with them they would still have, it would be like the walking dead. That's number one, <laughs> where, fine, no police, no problem. We got way more guns than you niggers, so, you know, whoop-de-doo, let's, let's get it on. We can go, my apologies for the metaphor. It would be an environment that would promote a lot of lawlessness, uh, where you could have license to commit acts of violence, shooting, whatever the case may be, because we don't have... Uh, we don't have police, so I'm going to handle it myself. And I'm armed, and I'm, you know, I'm ready to get down. I'm, matter of fact, beyond that, I am classified as white. I am a terrorist anyway, so this is wonderful for me. I also think if they get rid of the police department, now what happens to all of those officers? 
they already have this uh, in place in Seattle specifically, because that's where she was talking about, where you have a, a lot of wealthy whites, right, in uh, Seattle, specifically Washington State on the whole. They have neighborhoods of whites where they are hiring off-duty police to patrol their neighborhoods. They were talking, I posted about this, I can post it uh, again. They were having that, and then they had in Virginia, they had people that were signing up to be uh, like patrol officers. There was an official term, you're just a citizen. You don't go through police training or anything like that, but you can go out, you can patrol, you can stop people, you can issue citations and all of this. And they had this white guy, he was doing it. You would just have tons of that, and you would have whites where they would hire the former enforcement officers. They would just hire privately now all these race soldiers in the uh, most exclusive white areas. That's who would be patrolling their areas, and then it would just be lots and lots and lots and lots of armed whites uh, ready to get down. Uh, if you look at them wrong or, you know, he looked kind of shifty, looked like he was trying to get me or whatever, I would fear it for my life. So, you know, it would, that's what I think would happen uh, in a system of white supremacy. No problem. Let's get rid of the police, and we got it. That's what we wanted anyway. I could be totally crazy, but that's what I thought of when I heard that segment. Uh, other folks have commentary? And, you know, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Rosewood and Tulsa, Oklahoma didn't have police uh, departments, but they were still burnt down by white people. Can I hurt? Yes, sir. Yeah, the huge problem... Um, with the police in our neighborhoods is that I think um, what, what Bratton did in New York City was um, when all the blacks were complaining about, oh, the police, they come around, they do this. He pulled out the numbers and showed how many 911 calls come from our area. So um, you, you got to keep calling us there, so that's why we're here. So I think that would be a huge part of codification. You know? I think that um, we sometimes call the police when it's really not necessary to. Um, you know, it's just like a threat. I'm call the police. You know, it's, it's just become like a cliche. And there they go pressing 911, and now you have justification to be in our area. Um, yeah, I, they took all the police away. It'll just be lawlessness. And unfortunately, like you said, it'll turn into like on one of those South African um, gated communities. You got to have a bunch of race soldiers um, patrolling certain areas. And um, it, like the lady in the clip said, the guy went home, he went there his whole life in Philadelphia, I think. And um, the white neighbor that just moved in saw them go to the house and leave. She called police. And here he is about to probably get. Um, the shot of Tate going into his own house, um, sort of like Tate's. But it wasn't no beer conference for this guy. And um, it's just, you know, I could just, it would just be terrible. Um, especially up in Seattle, when I'm trying to figure out, is you said it's a lot of wealthy whites in Seattle. Um, what, 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 where do they work up here? Like, I mean, I don't, I don't associate Seattle or Washington State with a lot of big um, corporations. Starbucks is headquartered here. Like Boeing is headquartered here. Starbucks is headquartered here. Uh, okay. Microsoft is headquartered here. Um, that's a lot so of tech. A lot of like, yeah, manufacturing type um, work. Yes, and it's a port city. 
it's a uh, it's a port city. Gotcha, gotcha. Like four minutes left. Anything else? Folks want to make sure they get in. Four minutes. Folks are satisfied. That is great, too. We have a program coming up this week uh, from Uganda. Uh, one of our listeners wanted uh, this particular guest. She is an expat. She was born in the States. She's in Uganda now. Uh, she teaches and she does videos, right? She has a vlog of her experience. She did a video about how she had a non-white child, but one of the child's parents is white. And she was talking about how him practicing racism was impacting the child in her classroom and how she was dealing with it. It's fascinating. I'll have to uh, post it so you can check it out. but. She'll be with us, uh, I think it's Wednesday, but the time difference is pretty, uh, pretty massive. So it'll be like probably, uh, probably like 1 p.m. I'll post the exact time, but it'll probably be like 1 p.m. Eastern uh, this Wednesday. So I guess, you know, if you're at work or occupied at that time uh, very early in the day, then if you can listen live, great. Get your questions in. I always look forward to talking to people in different parts of the world. Uh, if not, you can look out for the, ar uh, uh, the archive. Uh, but that should be coming up this Wednesday at a uh, just uh, peculiar time uh, because of the massive uh, time difference. But I think first time we'll have a uh, visitor from Uganda. Uh, anything else? Last two minutes. Anything else? Yeah, I got a short story. Um, you know, um, I'm, like I told you, I'm working a new job. And uh, my training has been um, hit or miss. Um, so I'm doing the overnight shift, so I haven't been able to participate as much. But um, you know, I have a the schedule is kind of messed up. But um, the, the, the guy who's training, um, you know, we work for a few hours, and um, it's about 2 o'clock. And he tells me, you know, hey, and I see you at 4.30. I'm going to take my break. I'm about to go to the car and get some sleep. I'm thinking our break is only 45 minutes. You know, he wants to take a two-and-a-half-hour break. So I'm kind of sketchy, but I'm like, man, I need some sleep because I'm still doing my day job. And um, so I go to this designated area where you can, you know, sit down and eat or, you know, close your eyes and sit in the chair or whatever. And, you know, I don't know what it was, but, what woke me up was in my ear, I didn't have no headphones on. I just heard unmuted. <laughs> my eyes open, and I looked at the time, and it was like 3.15. I'm like, oh, shoot. And this guy says, be back at 3.30, because we're supposed to be back at 3, you know. So I, I go back anyway. And when I get there, and this, um, <laughs> this, the manager is standing there with scrubs on. I'm going to teach you how to, I'm going to train you guys on how to do how I want this thing done now from now on. Now, this guy's not supposed to be there at 6 in the morning. So, you know, they used to have no management. So he's, where's this guy at? You know, so I'm back pretty much, you know, as far as he know on time. And here this guy, he doesn't pop back up for an hour and a half, 4.30. Um, and he got written up and in trouble for that as well. Um, but, you know, it was just that unmuted popped off in my ear, in my head somewhere, and that, that's what woke me up. <laughs> that is hilarious. That is hilarious. I don't, uh, 
I don't know what the significance. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We can hear you. Oh no, I was, I was going to say um, also real quick. I I meant to say earlier or emphasize. Uh, this person, by the way, um, just making sure that um, everybody tries to get uh, keep mindful of their uh, stress levels, um, especially if they're going into uh, some type of surgery type setting, um, and. Um, just be mindful of the people that you're around, any type of uh, negativity and stuff like that. Um, especially if you're going in, in to have some type of major surgery. And uh, thank you for taking my call. Ashe, Ashe. Great reminder. Well, they, do the, they do the major surgeries listening to heavy metal music, so I don't know if that's a lot of evil entities going around while they're cutting you open. I was very um, surprised to hear when I saw that. Right on. We have done our three. Uh, as I stated, we will be back. Uh, it is this coming Wednesday, November 2nd. I uh, just have to do the time uh, <clears throat> because it's such a substantial time difference. But I know it will be. I know it will be substantially earlier than we are generally on. This coming uh, Tuesday. Uh, so check the Black Talk Radio Network page. You can check our Facebook page. Uh, it'll be posted uh, at least a day in advance, so you'll see the exact time that it'll be on early uh, during the daytime on tu- uh, Tuesday, excuse me, Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. Um, if you are able to dial in during the live program, great. Uh, if not, it'll be in the archives, but Wednesday, Wednesday, November 2nd, Wednesday, November 2nd, uh, our guest from Uganda will be on the program. Uh, with that, thanks to everyone uh, for tuning in. I hope it's been a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Uh, I'm very serious about the museum project. If you go, take uh, copious notes, uh, take pictures, video, uh, and in fact, if you are going, have some questions. Uh, think, you know, you don't have to have a lot. I mean, you could have two, three questions. Uh, If you have more, that's great, too. But you can have questions, as I said, for some of the staff. Definition of racism. And then you could have questions uh, for visitors. Are you going to talk to uh, white people? Are you going to talk to non-white people? Both, you know. uh, I think make it a counter-racist exercise, and I would love to hear it. I'm sure we have a lot of folks who would be very interested. People like myself who are thousands of miles away uh, from the museum. Uh, Check it out and uh, let us know. Make a report of it. I think that would be a great investment of time and energy, I am sure. I could be in error, but I'm pretty sure Dr. Welsing, being uh, the curious scientist that she was, I'm pretty sure she would have gone to check out the museum in her backyard. That's it. Uh, Sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, We want to make sure that we're able to make outstanding decisions at all times. Uh, War is being waged against us in all areas of people activity, worldwide, nonstop. Our behavior should reflect that at all times. That is codification, in my opinion. You certainly never know when you're going to be stopped by Darren Wilson, Daniel Holtzclaw, 
any other race soldier badge or no, when that time comes, you want to make sure you are lucid and at your counter-racist best. I don't think very many of us can truthfully say we are at our counter-racist best when we are intoxicated. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. Our thoughts, our prayers, support to Princess. Uh, we wish you uh, the best in your surgery. I hope you have a speedy recovery. Let us know if you need any assistance, and we will definitely uh, be praying for you. Context of White Supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you're so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>